0: listening to Radio Orbit it's KOPN Columbia my name is Mike Hagan we do this every Monday from 11pm until 2am tonight no different stick around in just a few minutes we have the wonderful Rian Eisler we have the music of Michael Caine through the evening tonight so it's going to be a wonderful program and we'll be back in just a moment as I said it's Mike Hagan you're listening to Radio Orbit thanks for being here Wonderful stuff. That's the music of Michael Kane He's with me live in the studio tonight. We'll have more from Michael in uh, just a little while. Uh, but this is the other Michael. It's Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And you're listening to it. Um, quickly here. Thanks to Debbie. Debbie Johnson, Free Range Radio Theater. Every Monday night, one hour before this program, Debbie does a wonderful program tonight, Gulliver's Travels and uh, lots of stuff uh, of interest always on Free Range Radio Theater. So join Debbie every Monday, an hour before this program, and uh, always on Mondays, uh, all through the day and night, great stuff on KOPN. So uh, a big thanks to everybody who joined in last week. Important and uh, fun messages and ideas from our close friend, Star Newland. We'll talk to Star again soon, but wonderful stuff uh, for everyone. Uh, from Star last week, and thanks as well to Lizzie and Tony for stopping by and playing some songs for us, of course, I mean Lizzie West and the White Buffalo, great independent music, featured as always on Radio Orbit, so wonderful stuff coming from them, and if you missed it, that show, as well as uh, all the other programs that we do here, are archived online, and you can listen to them, download them, podcast them, whatever, on the web, at www.mikehagen.com. And uh, you can also find inf- uh, information about all the musical guests that are um, or that appear on the program uh, from the website as well. So Lizzie West information there, and uh, uh, Michael Kane, of course, who's with us tonight. You'll be able to find information about Michael on my website as well. Okay? All right. Uh, tonight, a show I've been looking really, really forward to. Rihanna Eisler, a remarkable woman. She has. Uh, words of great wisdom to share with us so uh that in just a few minutes okay we've also got as i've said the beautiful music of michael kane to accompany us throughout the program so uh michael thank you for getting us started there what are you on you're on mic too there you are
1: yeah hi how are you thank you for having me i
0: appreciate it well you're welcome we've been trying to do this for a little while and we uh, got sidetracked a few weeks ago but I'm glad we were able to put it together tonight. Yeah, so. I
1: think it'll work out good.
0: All right, well thanks. Uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit more with you in the future. I want to ask you a few more uh, questions about your music and what's going on around town. But we'll do that as we get going, okay? Sure, yeah. Okay, um, let's uh, do one more thing here really quickly. Get them out of the way. All the websites... As I said, MikeHagan.com. The show is uh, streaming live tonight and every Monday night, thanks to the wonderful people at CosmicWavesRadio.com. If you go to my website, you'll see uh, obvious uh, means to get the live stream going. And uh, if you're not in the local KOPN uh, regional or local listening area, I should say, well, you can listen on the web now every Monday night. So uh, CosmicWavesRadio.com if you want to do that. Rian's website, www.partnershipway.org, that's partnershipway.org, and uh, the music of Michael Kane can be found on the web at www.mikklecane.com. It's MichaelCane.com, but you'll spell Michael in this case, m-i-k-k-l-e-c-a-n-e.com. All right? Okay, we got the forum buzzing. We got a live chat room up for those listening over the web. If you'd like to join us and uh, post comments, questions, whatever, for myself or Rian, uh, again, just go to the website. You'll find it very easy to get to the chat room. Uh, I love the interaction that's being made possible with the live stream and with the live chat and with all the technologies that are being made available to us now. You know, you can use them any way you like, so let's use them them for this sort of stuff to communicate and to... uh, Uh, to share information and ideas, okay? All right, let's get right to it, out of the gate to the fun stuff. Normally, we uh, get our interviews going an hour from now, but we're going to start right off the bat tonight. My guest tonight is the wonderful Rihanna Eisler. She's with us live from her home somewhere in California. She is perhaps best known for her international bestseller, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, a most amazing book which had a profound impact on my own understanding and ideas of social organization and culture, and it was written in 1987. It is as profound and poignant today as it was the day it was published. It's also a book that was raved about ever since it was published, basically. It's been called, among other things, the most important book since Darwin's origin of the species and things like that. So, uh, At any rate, uh, Rihanna's written a number of other books, Sacred Pleasure, Tomorrow's Children, The Power of Partnership, The Equal Rights Handbook. And she is president of the Center for Partnership Studies, uh, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to moving these ideas forward. So anyway, uh, Rian is a remarkable woman. I am extremely pleased to have her with us tonight. It's an absolute privilege for all of us. And uh, without further delay, hello, Rian Eisler. Thank you so much, and welcome to Radio Orbit. It's
2: a pleasure being with you, Mike.
0: Yes, it's a long time coming. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I finally got my courage up a couple of months ago and got in touch with you, <laughs> and uh, here we are. So I love how these things come together sometimes.
2: Well, I'm glad you did call me.
0: Well, uh, Rian, the way to start, I think, is um, for my listeners who are unfamiliar with you and your work. So perhaps we could do that first, a bit of background, maybe on who Rian Eisler is and how you managed to get on a path that led... To the chalice and the blade and eventually you know the implications that have followed that maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and where you came from
2: well I really sometimes think of my life as a jigsaw puzzle uh, where in different times of my life I had no idea how they would really fit together but somehow they did I was born in Vienna in Austria Mm. At a time in, uh, well, in history, uh, that was in terms of the conceptual framework that I've introduced, a time of massive regression to what I call the domination model. Hmm. It was the rise right to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then in my native Austria. So from one day to the next, my whole, uh, world really collapsed from being a cute little kid, you know, that people who'd and ahed about, my hmm. parents and I. Uh, we became hunted with license to kill, and it was really only by a miracle that we were able to escape uh, from Europe. And I uh, actually I grew up in well we had to leave everything behind. Um, you know it was quote confiscated, which is a nice official word for armed for official armed
3: robbery. <laughs> right, right.
2: Um, And I grew up in the slums of Havana, which was one of the few places that would take in Jewish refugees. In fact, we were on one of the last ships before one that was turned back. Uh, There was a movie made about that ship called The Voyage of the Damned. And it really was The Voyage of the Damned. It was the St. Louis. It was a ship of a thousand Jewish women, men, children fleeing from the Nazis. And that ship was not admitted either to Cuba or to the United States. States or to any other nation in the Western Hemisphere, it was turned back. And, of course, many of the people on board were then murdered Mm. in Nazi uh, extermination camps. And that would have been our fate had we not been on a ship just before that.
3: Unbelievable.
2: So very early, uh, naturally, I had to begin to ask questions, questions that for, well, many of us have asked. Uh, Questions about why, when we humans have this capacity for caring, for nonviolence, for uh, compassion, uh, for creativity rather than destructiveness, why has there been so much cruelty, so much destructiveness? Mm. And um, eventually, after, as I said, a rather circuitous route, (laughs) I return to those questions in my research. Um, I actually, my first career path was in sociology and anthropology, which is what I studied. Uh, again, I think it had something to do with those questions. Okay. Uh, my first job was as a social scientist, actually, for the uh, Systems Development Corporation, which was an offshoot of the RAND Corporation. Mm-hmm. That was very important for me because... It taught me about systems, but what, you know, it was a new field then to look at the whole picture, right? Right, oh, right, right. And also my legal training, because I am an attorney also by training, was very important because you have to look for patterns. <laughs> well, you know, somebody comes into your office and they don't say apply Section 1222 of the Civil Code to my case. They give you a story, right?
3: <laughs> right. And it's your job
2: to figure out the pattern and what law applies. And a lot of these experiences, including being a homemaker in the 1950s with little kids in the suburbs, uh, including a passionate interest for reasons that I really can't explain, uh, in actually uh, prehistory, in archaeology, Mm. in so-called mystery religions, and a lot of other things. Uh, eventually came together and were very, very useful in the cross-cultural, uh, historical, uh, the new analysis that led to my findings that were first uh, reported to a general readership in the Chalice and the Blade.
0: Okay. Well, uh, wonderful. And it's an amazing story. You know, I I, uh, I didn't realize that you were... I knew you were from Austria. I, I sort of... Uh, I guess I didn't really assume Vienna, but I spent some time there as well. And... Um, in, in the Salzburg area, as a matter of fact, I used to work in a place called Berchtesgaden, which is in southern Germany.
2: Yes, I know about Berchtesgaden. Hitler hung out. there.
0: Yes, it has, has a very uh, sort of checkered history, certainly, but it's a beautiful place. It's, you know, there's the, the duality comes through there too, as well. It's an absolutely amazing place, um, yet so much uh, uh, so much nastiness came came right from those hills.
2: Absolutely, and of course, in in some ways, the Austrians, you know, never really owned up to it. Mm. The Germans did, and now when I go back, because I'm often invited to uh, keynote conferences and, you know, my books, when they're translated into German, I've gone back to both Germany and Austria. Frankly, I'm more comfortable sometimes in Germany yeah. than I am in Austria. Is that right? Well, for that reason, mm-hmm. because at least the Germans that I've had contact with, for the most part, not always, mm-hmm. um they really were of a generation that said, "How could this happen?"
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. So they
2: were asking the same questions that I was asking, mm-hmm. and they too really wanted it never to happen again, whereas in Austria there was this denial you know we didn't do it, well, mm-hmm. of course they did
3: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and that's very interesting, this issue of denial isn't it it
3: is and
0: it, it, you know I, I found that too when I lived there i I went to to Dachau a number of times and what I found when I went to Dachau, both times that I was there, was that there were more Germans there than there were others, in other words, uh, you know, f- foreigners. They w- it, was, it was very well visited by the local population and by, by German citizens, and I found that fascinating. I think, it, I think it speaks to what you're talking about right here.
2: Well, I, too, returned to Dachau. There was a time in the 1970s when I simply had to confront that.
3: Oh, my God, Rihanna, I can't imagine.
2: Well, uh, I read Treblinka, Hmm. um, which is an extraordinary... My gosh, Hmm. I mean, it was a wrenching account because that's, you know, it was supposed to be the, quote, better concentration (laughs) camp, and it was a concentration camp in which there was actually a rebellion. Hmm. Uh, And I had to go back to Dachau. I mean, I had to see where I would have ended up had it not been for, well, for this miracle.
0: Hmm. Amazing. All right, well, we have... uh, we've mentioned already the the word dominator or domination and i think that's a big part uh, or at least half of the story here and uh, so let's move a little bit toward the book okay it's called the chalice and the blade and i want to ask you about the name uh, but i also i uh, think we should do a couple of definitions first off i know that there's a primary concept in the book that you call cultural transformation theory so maybe you could talk a little bit about that really quickly and do some definitions about partnership and dominator and this sort of thing, and then we'll move on to uh, uh, the more meatier uh, stuff, uh, stuff. actually,
2: Mike, I could start with the title okay. because it's a good entry point. At least I wanted it to be.
3: Well, there you have it. Um,
2: And now, you know, I just uh, am finishing a book on economics, applying my research to a new economics that I call a caring economics, And I am looking for an evocative title, Hmm. and I was, I mean, I I think it was really very solicitous, uh, the title of the chalice and the blade, because you see, both these are symbols for very different ways of looking at power and exercising power. Hmm. Uh, Well, the blade, we know, (laughs) Hmm. it's the power to dominate, the power to destroy, the power to take life. The chalice has, from remote antiquity, been the symbol of a very different kind of power, Uh, the power to give life, the power to nurture life, and, yes, the power to illuminate life. And those two conceptualizations of power are really very important symbols of what I call the partnership model, you know, the chalice view of power, power to, empowering power, if you will, Uh, power with, and the domination model, power over, right?
3: Represented by the blade.
2: Represented by the blade. Um, And those uh, two two social systems, really, uh, are at the core of what I call cultural transformation theory. And in a way, uh, well, let me backtrack for a moment. Uh, we're all used to the conventional social categories, aren't we? Such as right versus left,
3: mm-hmm. religious
2: versus secular, capitalist versus socialist, industrial versus pre- or post-industrial. And the problem, as I found, you know, when I was seeking answers for my quest, really,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, is that those categories really don't answer a very basic question, the question that we must answer. The question of what kinds of beliefs... And what kinds of social institutions from the family, uh, education, religion to politics and economics support two very different human possibilities, our capacity for caring, for creativity, uh, for consciousness, or our capacities for insensitivity, uh, our capacity for cruelty, our capacity, well uh for basically a uh, violence we have these capacities right. uh the issue for us is to really construct the uh, social conditions that can make it possible not uh, for us to live in a an ideal world a completely violence free world i mean that is not realistic but to live in a far more equitable, peaceful, and sustainable way uh, in living with relations that, rather than being top-down rankings of domination, whether it's in families or whether it's uh, you know in the, in the state or tribe, etc., or relations of mutual respect, mutual care, and mutual benefit. Uh, that's the question uh, underlying my work and the new social categories. Of the partnership system and the domination system describe precisely those conditions which are not described by the earlier social categories
0: okay so um, so are we talking about the structure of the relationship between men and women then sort of the two halves of, of, of humanity well
2: that's a very important piece but it's not the whole piece okay because you see, what uh, happen, what happens when people use this um, methodology that I call the study of relational dynamics, which is focusing on not only human relations but focusing on the mutually supporting uh, components, the relations of the core, you know, various core components of a social system, hmm. is that we see that the categories that we're so used to really don't uh, pay attention to something basic. I mean, so basic it's ludicrous, which is the cultural construction of the primary human relations, which include, yes, the relations between women and men, between the female and male half of humanity, and between them and their daughters and sons. The relations in which we first learn and continually practice either respect for human rights or the acceptance of human rights violations, is <laughs> natural or normal. In other words, uh, the conventional categories don't uh, pay much attention to those, and so they are really looking at a very incomplete picture. It's the patterns, the connections, the connecting of the dots, connecting an authoritarian uh, structure in both the family and the state, connecting a high degree of violence all the way from wife beating and child beating to pogroms mm. to uh, warfare. And yes, connecting uh, the social construction of relations uh, between women and men as the ranking of one half of humanity over the other half, that is the domination model. Okay. And the opposite of that, and it's always a matter of degree, is what I call the partnership system, where, again, you have a more democratic and egalitarian structure in both the family and the state, because the family is ignored in the conventional categories, you know, for for the most part. You have less violence, because you don't need it to maintain rigid rankings of domination, and you have a more equal Partnership between the female and male halves of humanity. And you can see that in prehistoric societies. You can see the trends in our world. You can see it in the Nordic nations, for example. Hmm. Today, which not coincidentally are nations uh, that have much more caring social and economic policy.
3: Hmm. All right. Well,
0: let's talk a little bit about the image on the cover of the book. Obviously, you said you wanted a provocative title, and I'm sure you chose a provocative image as well. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about it because uh, <laughs> it takes it takes us back to this prehistoric time, I think that you're talking about, and I think that's something that obviously needs to be talked about.
2: Well, actually, I didn't choose it. Um, Harper and Rowe, uh, uh, the artists at Harper and Rowe chose it. Is that right?: Yeah, and I think it was a very good choice, actually, because it is a provocative image. And it's a Cycladic um, goddess figurine, Um, very ancient, prehistoric figure, very interesting figure if you look at her, because um, what I like about her is she has breasts, but she's also phallic if you look at her. And that really symbolizes something very important about my work, which uh, is that the opposite of patriarchy isn't matriarchy. That's just another side of the domination coin.
0: Well, it just depends on who's dominating, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's what I call a partnership system. And what the archaeological and mythical data indicates, as a matter of fact, is uh, something that to us may seem remarkable, but that in these uh, more peaceful, more generally peaceful, not ideal, again, you know, people are very funny. You know, if it isn't perfect, you know, if, if something that orients more to the partnership side isn 't perfect it 's no good, right?
3: <laughs> right. We just
2: accept everything in the domination system right As mm. that 's just how it is but anyway uh, that that more balanced uh society more peaceful uh, more equitable in terms of distribution of wealth again, there are hierarchies, but they are what I call hierarchies of actualization. Mm. Rather than hierarchies of domination, power is exercised more chalice rather than blade power, right? Right, right, right. right. Uh, And what you find in those cultures is a much, much higher status of women. Hmm. And that's really an ignored key because we're so conditioned to think of anything connected with women or with gender for that matter as just a women's issue. And that's part of our heritage, isn't it, from more rigid dominator times. Hmm. But if we go way back, if you will, to Western indigenous cultures in prehistory, there are very, very strong indications um, that um, basically this notion that male dominance is inevitable, that it's inherent in our genes, uh, that that's just not so. Uh, and that's um, part of the story, of course, that I tell in The Child of the Blade, in my in the next book that I wrote after that called Sacred Pleasure, which mm-hmm. is, of course, a heresy, Sacred Pleasure. Right, right. Um, you know, it's about sex, myths and the politics of the body, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. etc. And it's a fascinating story. I mean, for me... Um, that was re- and for so many people who've read my work, hmm. uh, well, as for you, I, you said, uh, that was really eye opening, and it, what it explained there were so many things that otherwise didn't make any sense, hmm. so many myths that otherwise are absolutely meaningless.
0: Right, right. Well, let me ask you another question about this figure, uh, because as you mentioned, it has breasts. Um, but it is sort of a phallic shape. It's also in the shape of a cross, uh, but it has a beak on it.
2: Ah, yes. Well, that's so fascinating because it's a bird goddess. Mm. And one of the characteristics of the... she's um, Neolithic, which is, you know, New Stone Age, the first agrarian societies. Um, they seem to have had a, well, a sense of the interconnection Uh, between ourselves and other parts of nature and So you find these fantastic hybrid uh, figures Um, You you see it even later in um, one of the most extraordinary Civilizations of antiquity the Minoan civilization Mm. that flourished for thousands of years on the island of Crete Uh, and and you see um, Fantastic figures, griffins, uh, uh, you know, I mean, in fact, one of the most interesting figures is, of course, the minotaur. <laughs> right. And if you look, I, I, I go into a, a deconstruction of that story in Sacred Pleasure, because, of course, you know, the way it's presented by Greek later Greek write, uh, writers, and I should say, but obviously, there was a shift from these cultures. Okay, a cultural transformation, right?
3: Right. Something the happened domination in between, model,
2: yeah. so that we really don't get confused here mm-hmm. as to how 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 do we? I mean, because we're trying to reverse that shift, which is the other part of cultural transformation theory. But we can get to that in a, in a little bit. But to stay with the story of Theseus, uh, Ariadne, and the Minotaur. And the Minotaur
3: right? Uh, if you
2: look at Minoan seals. The Minotaur isn't in the least bit a menacing figure. I mean, there's a seal that I just had to laugh because there is this, this creature, half bull, half man, and it's sort of seated, seated casually with legs crossed on the chair, <laughs> looking very amiable, you know? Right, right. And of course, obviously, uh, that story is really a remissing as we shifted from more of a partnership orientation to more of the domination orientation, not only did the reality change, but the stories, the myths changed. If you go way back into the old stone age, the Paleolithic, uh, the bull is already an important symbol. And the bull is a very important symbol and very often associated with a female uh, mother deity.
0: Right, with the goddess uh, religions too. But yeah. the
2: goddess religions, of course. But then you see, you get with the Minotaur, it's the first vilification of the bull god. Of course, later the bull god becomes the horned and hoofed devil of Christian mythology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you see, but it already starts with the Greeks. Mm -hmm. So here you had a story about how uh, the bull uh, is the, the the Minotaur is the issue of the union of a bull. With the Queen with the with the basically the high priestess mm-hmm. okay right. let's go back to some very very ancient myths and all of a sudden uh, it, it's a vile dangerous creature mm. Amazing, isn't it fascinating
0: yeah the way they the way these things get twisted uh, and, and there are many examples of it that we'll talk about uh, uh, I tell you uh, Rian this is a good place to take a little break for us okay Okay. So let's do that. We will have uh, uh, my good friend Michael Kane, who's in the studio with me here, and he's going to play some music for us tonight. So, Michael, I will let you say hello to uh, Rian, by the way. Okay.
1: Good evening. How are you?
2: I'm fine, Michael. How are you?
1: Good. It's a pleasure uh, listening to you.
2: Thank you. Quite compelling. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure listening to you, too. I heard some of your music.
0: (laughs) Well, you should have heard the whole song if my technology would have cooperated. But uh, at any rate, you'll hear a whole one here, Rian. So we'll do that. We'll hear a song here from Michael. And uh, we will come back with Rian Eisler. And, uh, Rian, thanks again for being here. We'll be back in just a moment, okay? Okay. All right. uh, Websites, one more time, www.mikehagen.com. You can get there. You can join us on the web. Uh, There's a live chat happening right now and I should peek in there and see what's going on uh, well as we roll along the program we'll consult with those people in the chat room but there are some people there so hello to everybody there and um, uh, one more time for Rian Eisler her website www.partnershipway.org and you can get there directly from my site as well okay alright here we go Michael Kane, lovely music and we'll be back with the lovely Rian Eisler in just a few moments Cain. <clears throat> music, independent music, live in the studio tonight with me. You can find information about Michael on the web, uh, on the web at M I K K L E C A N E dot com. And he also has a MySpace page that's uh, MySpace dot com slash Michael Kane, M I C H A E L C A N E. All right, it's Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, it's KOPN Columbia. We're streaming live on Cosmic Waves Radio. Dot com. If you want to hear us on the web, that's the way to do it. And we are live right now with Rianne Eisler, the author of The Chalice and the Blade, among other wonderful books. And she's with us live from California, and we will get right back to her. Hi, Rianne.
2: Hi, I'm back here, too.
0: All right. Thank you for sticking around with us. Hey, um, right before the break there, we were talking about uh, the Minotaur and this idea of, of, of the twisting of concepts and this sort of thing. And I know that the same thing sort of happened with the cross. And this is another image that is, uh, well, it's it's another uh, component, I guess, of the image that's on the front of, of the book, The Chalice and the Blade. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the cross and its history and how that has been also sort of morphed over time?
2: Well, there are certain uh, symbols, crosses, triangles, Uh, that really are part of the universal symbology but how that uh, symbology, its meaning really is very different again depending on the degree to which a place and time orient to either end of what I call the partnership domination continuum Mm -hmm. take the cross Um, we first see a lot of uh, crosses, x's or crosses uh, incised in many of the female figurines uh, from the Neolithic or early Stone age it's along with um, you know circles uh, along with spirals etc right.
3: right.
2: now the meaning that archaeologists and mythologists attribute to why would there be these these crosses or exes it was really more of a symbol of the unity uh, of everything, of north, south, east, west,
3: mm. etc. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: the 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 universe. Yeah. Now, as you move to the domination model, however, the cross begins to have a very different um, meaning. You see it already with the Assyrians, uh, who were just a very brutal, brutal, yeah,
3: yes. and
2: and when they they would just have roads lined with crucified people uh, from conquered populations and of course in Greek and Roman times uh, the crucifixion was still an accepted uh, way of execution hmm. but uh, very interestingly then with early Christianity uh, of course I mean the the teachings of Jesus were very much partnership teachings uh, Compassion, empathy, nonviolence, etc. And the early Christian communities actually there was, you know, we know there was a great deal of equality between women and men. Women could baptize; they could be bishops. Uh, We even see that in the official scriptures, and we know, you know, the the the, um, New Testament. Hmm. But we also see a lot of it in the so-called Gnostic gospels. Okay,
0: right, right, the Thomas Gospel Uh, and.
2: That's right, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, mm, right, etc.
3: Right,
2: right. Um, but the thing that's so interesting, then uh, the cross becomes again a symbol of regeneration, hmm. not just of death.
0: So they combine the two.
2: Yes, yes. And of course, we've been living uh, really, uh, you know, with that symbology, uh, and some people emphasize more the punitive aspects of religion, you know, this angry punitive god made in the image of angry punitive warlords basically Mm -hmm. uh... you know as some of the fundamentalist muslim warlords today right Right,
3: right.
2: uh... you know the same tribal societies Um, or you can have a very different conception of deity and not coincidentally that conception of deity uh... as in isaiah for example uh, sometimes you know it has a motherly aspect. You know, he Isaiah wrote about, like, like, the arms, you know, of a mother holding you, and more nurturing. We're back to the trellis and the blade, and to partnership and domination, aren't we? Right,
3: right, always. So, yeah.
2: But this uh missing story that I, um, I mean, it's like really being a a detective looking through archaeology and mythology. Uh, it's such a fascinating story. Uh, I mean, if you look at images like Medusa, for example. Right. And, you know, the snake goddess. Uh, I mean, the snake was a symbol of oracular prophecy and of birth and rebirth.
3: hmm mm-hmm. Because
2: it periodically sheds and renews its skin. I right, mean,
0: right. Like um, the moon sheds its shadow, yeah.
2: That's right. So, uh, but then it becomes this horrible, horrible Medusa. Mm-hmm. And so you see not only the vilification of women, you know, as in the story of of Pandora and of course Eve, right,
3: right,
0: but also right.
2: the vilification of earlier female deities. Okay.
0: All right. So this is obviously a big part of it, and we have uh, the the objectification of women. I mean, that 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 becomes something that uh, apparently. I mean, to me, it seems like the objectification of women, if you can do, if you, in other words, if you can do these things uh, in a domination type manner to the person who, who is most close to you, or the person who you're supposed to be sharing the most with, then from there you can do it to anyone? Is that?
2: Well, of course, and that's something that always amazes me about so many of the uh, progressive writings, that they miss that core.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit because I think that is such an important part of it. Uh, at least to me, that's one of the things that came through so so deeply for me and from from your books.
2: Well, you know, once you articulate it, of course, there are two halves of humanity, right. two fundamental halves. They're called women, and they're called men. They're called male and female, and it would seem to stand to reason that how that relationship is culturally constructed is a a cornerstone, a centerpiece, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only symbolically, but in terms of what kind of relationships are uh, presented as normal, as natural. And as you say, uh, I mean, if you can't even... Look at the story of Eve. Uh, You can't even trust... uh, the, the, every man has to have a relationship with a woman. He's born of woman. Mm-hmm. And in the days before formula, he was suckled by woman. Right. And yet this is the person uh, that was so dangerous, right? Yeah, you right. couldn't trust her. Right. Well, you can't trust her. You can't trust anybody. Right, right, right. And it also presents this notion that there are only two alternatives. You either dominate or you're dominated. So... uh you know, the the script now is, you know, the dominator script is that only men get to dominate and women must be dominated, but of course, women then manipulate, and because that's what powerless, disempowered people do, and what you get is a mess, you get the war of the sexes, (laughs) so war, war of the sexes, they're really, I mean, inherent in the domination model, they're There's no way of changing that without changing the model. And you have to start with that basic relationship. As I said, with the two really fundamental relations, between parents and children and women and men, the relations without which none of us would be here. They're so foundational.
0: What What about the relationship to yourself?
2: Well, that's really connected, isn't it? You know, I wrote a book called The Power of Partnership, which you probably know. Mm-hmm. I sort of tried to, um, you know, after I wrote The Chalice and the Blade and A Sacred Pleasure, I started to really turn to how. what are some of the practical ways, uh, some of the interventions really for accelerating the movement towards partnership, because you and I wouldn't be having this conversation if there hadn't been some movement, right? (laughs) That's true. Well, I mean, you know, the European Middle Ages, I mean, they really looked like the Taliban, didn't they? (laughs) You know, the Inquisition, the Crusades, uh, you know, women were just totally controlled by men, terrible child abuse, uh, you know, wars constantly. But anyway, and you know, I mean, so we have moved. But, uh, the the point uh, uh, of the matter is that if we're going to change um, anything, we really can't just pay attention to the top of the domination pyramid. You know the relations in the so-called public sphere that from which women and children were traditionally barred. We have to pay attention to those foundational relations. Right. And that's what a lot of my work is about. So in the power of partnership, I basically Wrote a book um, of the genre of uh, well, of self-help. Of course, I would have to laugh because you know, if, if self-help books really were so good, we wouldn't need so many of them, <laughs> would we? That's right. <laughs> but yeah. this
3: this is a very <clears throat> different
2: self-help book, I must say. Uh, even though it won an award as the best self-help book of two thousand and three, <laughs> but it doesn't just. It starts with how we relate to ourselves. Then it goes on to our intimate relations. It goes on to our work and family relations. It goes on, however, then to where self-help books usually don't go, which is our national relations, our international relations, our relations with Mother Earth, and our spiritual relations, and showing how very different those are, depending on the degree of orientation, as I said, to either end of the partnership and domination continuum, and how really... All this talk about healing ourselves. Well, trying to heal yourself within a domination system it's like trying to go up on a down elevator. Hmm. So we, the more we heal ourselves, if you want to use that vocabulary, the more we have to use the energy that we then free to change society, to heal society, if we want to really, uh, to really realize our full human potentials. All,
0: right. All right. Let's see. Um, <clears throat> What do I want to ask you after that? Okay, with, with regard to, to, to the personal stuff, how do things like pain and fear fit into this model?
2: Well, obviously there's pain and fear in the world. We uh, get sick, we die, the, our loved ones uh, die. Um, there are earthquakes, right. there are floods. Uh, there's always going to be some fear and some pain. The problem, however, is that the domination system artificially creates fear and pain. On top of, you know, what's inevitable, there's a lot of it. I mean, and there's so many ways in which it does that on both the personal level. I mean, I've just I've been writing about economics, for example. Mm-hmm. And, well... Domination systems artificially create scarcity.
3: Hmm.
2: I mean, of course there's going to be scarcity sometimes, but in a domination system you get artificial scarcity through misdistribution of resources, okay? For
0: you know. purposes of control?
2: Well, yeah, because people, it goes to those on top. Hmm. You know, you've heard of trickle-down economics. What? That's dominator economics. <laughs> it's obscene, really. <laughs> Uh, you get uh, not only misdistribution of resources, you get a low investment uh, in the so-called women's work of caring for children, and mm. so you get much lower quality human capital, right? Right. You get the misallocation of resources to armaments, to weapons, to wars. Uh, you get, I mean, the, the system is meant to create scarcity because the system maintains itself uh, through stress. Okay? And then on top of it, you have all the stories in that system, you know, about uh, these vengeful, punitive deities. And, uh, I mean, it's, 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 that's, you know, in sacred pleasure. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I was, I mean, I started to think, well, what, what happens when you apply, uh, the research on these two configurations the partnership configuration and the domination configuration to sexuality and spirituality okay mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that really struck me is how many of our sacred images sacralize either the infliction or suffering of pain think about it mm. i mean just think about it where are the images of pleasure
0: Right. We sure don't have many of them that are in the, not, not in the open, at least.
2: <laughs> well, and yet, if you look at some of the ancient images, for example, the images of the sacred marriage, mm-hmm. tremendous sacralization of pleasure, and yet, a, really, a, a linking of sexuality and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And you still have vestiges of that, even in the uh, Judeo-Christian uh, Bible, in, for example, the Song of Songs, right? Right. That is really an erotic song, and what the heck is that doing there? <laughs> okay. So, I mean, there's so many clues. It's it's really fascinating. But my work has really more and more now started to focus on where are we and where do we go from here. I wrote a book called Tomorrow's Children
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: on uh, partnership education, which, by the way, I'm really delighted to say uh, was recently translated into Urdu, for use in Pakistan, and has been adopted uh, by a, a a government college in Lahore. Wow! Uh, uh, you know, as part of their one of their texts for education, and is is, is currently being translated into Chinese.
0: Congratulations! That's wonderful news, right? Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, many of my books, the Chalice and the Blade, well, that's is, been
0: translated into many many languages.
2: Oh, yeah, that's in about twenty-two languages. Right.
0: right.
2: So it's it's really exciting.
0: It is, and, and, uh, you know, it it, it speaks to something. In other words, this message has been out there now circulating, and it's been a meme that's been introduced into society now for some 19 years. And, uh, you know, there have been other wonderful people along the way that have, you know, you're standing on great shoulders, as so many people are, but there's lots of great work being done. What do you make of, uh, as, as you say, where we are right now? In other words, all of this stuff has been sort of percolating for a while. I'd love to know what you're... Sort of current uh, prognosis is?
2: Well, I, uh, my prognosis and my analysis, uh, I mean prognosis, I don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> my analysis is that we are in the midst of a massive regression to the domination model worldwide. Um, you know, if you look at modern history from the perspective of the underlying tension, between the domination system and the partnership system, if you will, as two attractors, you know, to use the language of nonlinear dynamics. Right. Uh, What you really see is that much of modern history has been one challenge after another to traditions of domination through organized, organized social movements. You know, the Enlightenment, the so-called rights of man movement, you know, challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of kings Mm -hmm. to rule over their subjects the uh, so-called women's rights, uh, you know, feminist movement, challenging again another uh, dominated tradition, the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over the women and children in the cold castles of their homes. Right, and you right. go on to the abolitionist movement, challenging again the so-called divinely ordained right of one race to rule over even enslave another race. And, you know, the social justice movements, Uh, uh, Well, the environmental movement, you know, jumping to our time, I mean, it challenges another tradition of domination, uh, the once hallowed conquest of nature, right? Right, right. So, if you look at all these movements, and there are many more, including a very important new uh, movement, which is challenges to traditions, entrenched traditions of intimate violence. Of violence against women and children in families, mm-hmm. as well as outside of families, of course. I mean, what you see is that if you look, if you look at, at that, you see that instead of just disconnected random events, what you have is a very powerful thrust towards the partnership side, countered by enormous and fierce, and sometimes violent resistance, and periodic regressions. Mm -hmm. So what you have is not a linear upward movement but more of a spiral movement with dips, okay? Right, right. Now, Hitler was such a dip.
0: (laughs) Yes, certainly. I
2: mean, big time. Um, But we're in a dip today, uh, and you see it in so many ways. I mean, first of all, this growing gap between haves and have-nots, both within nations and between Mm -hmm. nations. That's part of the domination model. Uh, You see it in uh, in fundamentalism, which is really not religious. It's dominator fundamentalism. It's about going back, you know, to top-down theocratic control in both the family, you know, male control in the family, right? You know, male headship, the punitive father, you know, both in heaven and earth, right? Right. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's the same old stuff. And, of course, uh, In periods of regression like this, um, it's very easy for people to just get reactive rather than proactive, Mm. and that's very dangerous. I mean, just trying to put your finger into the dike doesn't do it. We don't have enough fingers.
3: Right, 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 right.
2: So I think, um, I mean, my work is about being proactive. What does a really progressive, caring family values agenda look like? what does a caring economic partnership economic agenda look like uh, because look if we're going to not just deconstruct but reconstruct mm-hmm. um we need some guidelines i don't have the answer you know i mean i none of this stuff of having the answer in handy tablet form you know like the right. ten commandments or anything like that <laughs> yeah but it is very important that we really think through uh, if we want to design something, what are some of the design elements? Hmm. And right. the partnership model provides those.
0: All right. Well, uh, let me do a station ID here really quick here, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Uh, this is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and my guest is Rian Eisler. You can find information about Rian at www.partnershipway.org. And we also are accompanied in the studio tonight by Michael Kane, who's Playing some lovely music for us. So, okay, Rian, um, let me ask you one more quick question. Then we'll take a break here in a few minutes. Okay? Um, the you, one of the uh, quotes at the beginning of uh, of the Chalice is: uh, uh, Human evolution is now at a crossroads. Stripped to its essentials, the central human task is how to organize society to promote the survival of our species and the development of our unique potentials. A partnership society offers us a viable alternative, and uh, that's basically what you're alluding to as w- w- when we're talking over these last few minutes, but um, when we come back from the break, I'd like to solidify it a little bit more w- w- with the past, to show people that there really is a, uh, a precedent that's been set. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about Minnow and Crete, maybe we could talk about Chetalyuk just a little bit, and I'd also, if you don't mind, I was reading, um, I'm a huge fan of Joseph Campbell. And I was reading a piece of his uh, just a couple of days ago, and I came across some stuff about the Troubadours.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah, I write about the Troubadours, too.
0: I know you do. And so um, I thought that was maybe a sign that I might ask you a little bit uh, about the Troubadours and, uh, and, and what, an important, uh, what an important important sort of movement that was uh, back eight 900 years ago or whatever. So Okay. Okay, so um, let's do that. We'll come back, and uh, we'll talk more with Rian. And in the meantime, we'll have a song here from Michael. Let's see. What do you got there for us, Mike?
4: Uh,
1: I'll play a song that um, I don't know. Talking of getting in you know, families and things like that, this is a song that uh, that I wrote um, for my family, for <laughs> my mother and father.
0: So, all right, everybody. This is Michael Kane, and you listen to Radio Orbit. We've got Rihanna Eiser on the line with us. We'll be back with her in just a few minutes. Uh, check us all out on the web at mikehagan And in the meantime, here's some great music from Michael Caine. Kane live, independent music coming to you just after midnight on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, and it's Mike Hagan. Thanks for sticking around with us, everybody. Hello to everybody listening over the web. Bunch of people in the chat room, and I will get to your questions, I promise. Rian, there's so many uh, questions that are popping up from people that are listening live over the web right now, and um, I'm trying to determine when the right time to ask you all this stuff is, but...
2: Maybe uh, we should do it sooner because I don't know how long I'm going to last
0: with you here. Okay. Well, I'll tell you one. There's one here that's pretty uh, relevant to the conversation that we were having before the break here. And it's a pretty heavy question, but I am uh, but I have to ask it to you. And because of your background, I think that you're the, a good person to ask. Anyway, uh, a gentleman on the board says, Does Rian see any parallels, analogies with the current state of USA affairs, socially, politically, et cetera, and the National Socialist Nazi regime uh, regime that she fled from years ago.
2: Well, I see, as I said, that this is a period of regression to the domination model, and unfortunately, I see it worldwide, including here in the United States. Certainly, the curtailments of, of civil rights, uh, the secrecy, the reliance on violence, the policies. Uh, you know, to really uh, well get women back into their quote, traditional or subservient place mm. uh, to curtail or, or really take away from women reproductive freedom. These are all unfortunately symptomatic of uh, regressions to the domination model. Uh, and, and yes, I think this is extremely dangerous. This said, I want to point out, however, that there are some major differences between the United States and um, the well the Germany when the Nazis came to power. There was no democratic tradition. Mm. Um, the Weimar Republic was very short lived okay. um, The family structure generally, and this is one of the major reasons that it could take root there, was indeed the male headship, the family structure, and it um, was, you know, much firmer, more, more, more entrenched than it is in the United States today, although certainly there's a huge push to push us back, you know. All this talk about family values is about valuing, an authoritarian, male-dominated, procreation-oriented, highly punitive family, right?
0: Right, right. The, what, did it, uh, what was it? Every, every man as king or something like, king That's of his right. own castle or Right. Mm-hmm.
2: So, yes, it's dangerous and, yes, it's very, very important that we change um, our government uh, at this time. It's essential uh, the American people, you know, the mass media in this country, unfortunately, you know, they're owned by what about six major companies?
0: Yeah, if that now?
2: If that maybe five by now? Uh, I mean, it's it's. I mean, you know, there's still some independent media, but very very few. Uh, so it's a dangerous situation. But I think precisely because it is so dangerous, it's really a time where uh, we must be very very active. And not get discouraged. See, this is the thing. Uh, we have to be perseverant. We, we have to just hang in there. Mm. And yes, and I really can't repeat this enough, we really have to start paying much more attention to long-term strategies mm. to build the foundations, uh, the foundations in the way of more partnership-oriented primary relations between women and men and parents and children, uh, so that we don't have... See, as long as the old domination foundations are in place, that's what the domination pyramid rests on, and it continues to rebuild itself on in different forms. And I uh, really... I mean, to get through to a lot of progressive people, to really get that across to them, that, yes, we need to win an election, fine, essential. But that's not it, because we've got to have long-term strategies for cultural change. Mm -hmm. Just as the people pushing us back, I mean, it's really amazing to me uh, that progressives don't seem to understand what a major part the uh, campaign, the very concentrated campaign of the so-called religious right um, has has played uh, the, the campaign on the family. I mean, I, I it it just absolutely makes me wonder how it is possible that they don't understand it. You know, there was a survey done which I really have to share with you, and there's an article on that that you can get from our website. Yeah, please. Um, which is partnershipway.org. But there was a survey done. On attitudes, um, uh, the question was asked um, wh- whether you know he, he, whether the father of the family is master of the house. Now, in 1992, when Americans were asked that question, 42 percent said yes. By 2004, okay, I mean the the, the years of massive regression the percentage rose to 52%. Wow. Whereas comparable data uh, in Canada, less than a third of Canadians, and only 20% of Europeans agreed with the so-called traditional value. Now, you can't really tell me that this is a coincidence the fact is that slogans like, quote, traditional values, mm-hmm. market a family where fathers make the rules and harshly punish disobedience. And that's exactly the kind of family that prepares people to defer to, quote, strong leaders who brook no dissent and use force to impose their will. And, uh, you know, if we are serious now we've got to offer a progressive partnership family agenda to counter this regressive family values agenda, and I've been working on that all right.
0: okay well uh, before i lose my uh, before I lose my track here, let's go back to the troubadours for a moment okay, okay? <laughs> and there is uh, actually um, someone in the chat room makes a wonderful uh, uh, makes note of a wonderful quote here from Robert Johnson, and this particular quote Rian, says above all. This myth gives us painful uh, gives us a painfully accurate picture of romantic love, why it came into our culture, what it is, and why it isn't working very well. Uh, maybe that's a good way to sort of jump into the true uh, the troubadour ideas because romantic love was something that really didn't exist, or or at least it hadn't existed for a long time uh, until that sort of came back.
2: Well, the troubadours are a fascinating phenomenon. You know, they came out of a time when a lot of the men were away fighting the crusades, mm-hmm. okay? And so the Troubadours came out of the courts of women in the south of France, of Eleanor of Aquitaine, her daughters, Alex and Marie. Uh, you know, while the men were away, the women sort of ran things uh, differently. And I really want to pause for a moment to say that this, when we're talking about women and men, we have to be very careful to really make a distinction between innate female and male traits and uh dominator gender stereotypes okay. that we've all internalized uh for example, I happen to be married to a very caring man he's a male, but he's very caring mm-hmm. but the dominator uh stereotype of a real man right well, it's somebody who isn't soft or feminine right. okay right. At the same time, we know that some women are very cruel. Uh, so it isn't a question of anything innate. I mean, women may be more predisposed than men because of our maternal uh, function uh, to learn caring behaviors. But most of our behaviors are learned.
3: So, And, so, so and Rian... men can
2: learn these behaviors. So I think that's really important. And we see that with the fathers. So many fathers today that are doing fathering the way that mothering, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think that's a very, very important point before we go off into this war of the sexist deal
0: okay well and l- let me just clarify in other words, the dominator model distorts both women and men, not just oh, not, not just not just okay All right. i mean
2: women look there's some wonderful so called masculine characteristics assertiveness, logic right? Mm-hmm. but of course, women can be logical and assertive, <laughs> and uh men can be caring and nurturing. Right, right. I mean, we can learn these different behaviors. Uh, So that's very, very important for us to keep in mind, or we get involved in this ridiculous, you know, well, you know, women, men, and... and
3: Right, right.
0: And it's so strange that you don't see it anywhere else in nature, you know?
2: Well, you do see it in nature. Um, I mean, you see different ways of constructing masculinity and femininity in different species. And some species are very male-dominated. Others uh, are not. I mean, I it's, it's, it's very interesting. Our two closest, um, same um, difference in uh, DNA, are the bonobo chimpanzees and the common chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And the bonobo chimpanzees are much more egalitarian than the uh, so-called common chimpanzees.
3: Really? Is that right?
2: Oh, yeah. If you read my book, Sacred Pleasure, Chapter 2, I have a lot on the bonobos in there, because I became so fascinated with them. Uh, For example, you know, social biologists keep telling us, you know, that, oh, well, you know, male dominance, even rape, that's because men must, you know, they're so intent on passing on their genes. Uh. Well, you know, the bonobo chimpanzees, they couldn't care less about paternity, Mm. and a lot of... Dollars have remarks on that.
0: They don't eat mushrooms, do they? <laughs> no, they don't eat mushrooms. <laughs> okay.
3: They I live.
2: I mean, they're almost extinct by now. It's yeah. so tragic. Oh,
3: they I live
2: guess. in the uh, rainforest of Zaire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, anyway, but that's another story. But you wanted to talk about the troubadours.
3: Yes, yes. So,
2: so, what? Who were these troubadours? And by the way, they were also trobarices, female poets. Okay that we don't hear about. Of course, you
0: never hear their story, right?
2: Oh, well, I write about those in Sacred Pleasure, Mm -hmm, too. mm -hmm. But the point of it about the Troubadours is so interesting because they introduce a concept uh, of gentleman, which is so completely alien to the dominator construction of masculinity. Of course, I mean, we're talking about a time when the domination model was already firmly entrenched. But that was a time, really, of some movement towards the partnership model, because it wasn't just the troubadours, it was also the return of the veneration of Mary, Mm. Uh, all the cathedrals, Chartres, always to, uh, you know, to our great mother. Notre
0: Dame de Chard, Notre Dame de uh, Paris. Notre
2: Dame, Our Lady. Mm -hmm. So it was really, in a way, a kind of a resurgence of the veneration of a female deity. Of course, in Christianity, you know, you've got this very peculiar... Yeah, the, Holy Family were only the Father and the Son are divine, and she's been demoted, right? The Mother of God.
3: Right? How, what's that all about?
2: Well, you know what that's all about. It's called remissing, <laughs> and it's very appropriate for the domination model.
0: And I mean, I love to point it out. Though. I love that you pointed out. I mean, it's so silly. In other words, you have this, you have this omnipotent Father, the divine God. You have the divine Son, and you have Mom, who's just sort of, well, I don't know, just a surrogate of sorts, apparently. <laughs>
2: You know, it's just sort of weird. The whole thing is weird. Yeah, you know it's I mean? just and and a lot of these stories. I mean, I of course, I mean the whole story of of of, of uh, you know the the whole Christian stories. Yeah, I was very fascinated by mystery cults, as I told you totally. early. You know, it's an hour ago. Right, right. Here, right. and uh, you know, I'd read about these Isis, Osiris. You right, know. Right, right. Uh, It was always the story of a very powerful female deity Mm -hmm. and her son or lover. And it was always about his death and resurrection.
3: Right. Yeah, the the Isis
0: horror story reminds me exactly of the Christian uh, Christ story, basically. That's
2: right. And and that's really the derivation, by the way. And that's one of the reasons that it took, if you will, in the classical world, because they had those traditions. Mm. I mean... Uh, you know, it's sort of, well, it was sort of a, a, a re- re- rewriting, if you will, right. a,
0: and there were scripting and, be, and before that, Persephone and the serpent, or Lita and the swan, and all these.
2: Well, Persephone was with the meter, and uh, Lita and the swan, no, those things were already dominator stories.
3: Okay, all right. All right.
2: I mean, because Persephone gets raped, if you remember, but the meter... The mother goddess still has the power to bring her back for half the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Alright, so this is where it's sort of the transition or something.
2: Well, it's really fascinating with the meter, it's really interesting because first she becomes a saint, Saint Demetra.
3: Right, right. And
2: then she has a sex change and she becomes Saint Demeter. A male. <laughs> uh, so so you can see the remissing. I mean, these stories it's really like being a sort of a Sherlock Holmes mm. going through these stories. But you mentioned uh, Campbell, and Campbell is fascinating because Campbell, unfortunately, I mean, brilliant though he was, he really didn't make much of a distinction between myths for, you know, appropriate for a partnership or domination
3: oh. system. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I mean, for him, a lot of, uh, Dominator myths, he saw them as universal myths, just as Freud, for example, saw the Oedipus Complex, which that's is a right. bizarre story of right. how every man wants to kill his father so he can sleep with his mother. Right. Well, I
3: mean, right.
2: you, you know, I mean, that's really the distorted male psyche in a dominator society where the young men vie for power with the old men, right?
3: Right. right. For
2: domination.
3: hmm mm-hmm.
2: uh, uh, Just like... Freud's penis envy had nothing to do with women wanting a male organ. They just envied men's privilege and autonomy.
3: I see, I see.
2: So see, all of these myths, so Campbell kind of put them all together. And in my work, I've been kind of sorting them and saying, well, uh, you know, certain kinds of myths really are very, very appropriate for the kind of belief systems, uh, that go with the domination system but others are more appropriate for the belief system that goes with the partnership
3: one
0: Alright, so um, so one that goes with the partnership one might possibly be the, the Tristan and Isolde myth
2: Well, except or, for the fact that they both have to die Yeah, in
0: fact they have to die because of their love, right
2: Yeah, because, you know, I mean, that's sort of the, the, the sort of uh, but that's really part of the troubadour heritage, isn't it that, uh, you know, troubadour is the the nice it was all of this sort of I want a close relationship with a woman. Uh, uh, you know I really know that this is this is beautiful and wonderful, and that women aren 't these inferior creatures you know as mm-hmm. they are supposed to be in the domination system, but somehow or other, it always goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so,
3: right,
2: right, our our right. great love stories are always about about you know the, the, you have to die.
3: Right,
0: the pain of love and all of yeah. this. Yeah.
2: Well, there can be pain in love. I well, mean, goodness yeah. knows when you get rejected, it's painful. Mm. But you don't have to die just because you have a great. I mean, I've been so blessed. I, my second marriage is really a great love story, mm. and I don't see any reason why. I mean, we're going to die, obviously eventually, <laughs> but it doesn't make it any more a great love story, a, a wonderful love story in the sense of, 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 of the gratitude that we both feel for every day together. We don't, you, know, you don't have to die for that to be a great love story.
0: And you can mention your husband, David, if you'd like, because I've heard uh, him speak as well, and he, he I, certainly I've never spoken with him, but he seems like a wonderful guy. So well,
2: He's not only wonderful, he's brilliant, and he writes Great books, and um, he's funny, and he's really an amazing man. But you, you know, some of his he's he's written such a variety of books. He wrote one book that some of your um, listeners may be familiar with because it was very popular. It was called *The Sphinx and the Rainbow*, Hmm. and recently, in fact, it's it's been re issued as Arrow Through Chaos. And and it's about how we use the mind and the brain to forecast the future. And David uh, had the courage, which is rare among scientists, to not only look at some of the empirical methods, you know, scientific methods like Delphi and so on, Mm -hmm. uh, but to also really recognize uh, that there is such a thing sometimes as precognition. That we seem to have this this possibility, but anyway, that book is Arrow Through Chaos.
3: Arrow Through Chaos.
2: And he's written quite a few books, the leadership, passion, you know, scholarly books. Mm-hmm. And lately, um, he lately, I mean, for the past ten years, he has been really rewriting uh, a much more balanced interpretation of Darwin's theory of evolution, mm-hmm. uh, because you know. Uh, Darwin's first book, which is Origin of Species, uh, was really primarily, well, almost exclusively, uh, about pre-human evolution. Right,
0: right. It it pretty much left us out of the equation.
2: That's right. It was only later in his book, Descent of Man...
3: Rian, I'm so glad you said that. Go on, go on, please.
2: ...that he um, uh, writes about human evolution. That's right. And David has basically pointed out that what we've got is only half of the Darwinian theory.
3: That's right. Because
2: it's so appropriate for the domination model, for Mm -hmm. the domination system.
3: Right, and Descent
0: of Man really changed uh, all of that. He talked about love and altruism and these sorts of things.
2: Absolutely. In fact, when David did a computerized word count for uh, Survival of the Fittest, uh, he found it only three times in Descent of Man and one time when Darwin said, gee, you know, I sort of think I made too much of that. Mm-hmm. Ninety-one times, I believe, 91 or 95, I can't remember,
3: was the word
2: count for love.
3: Mm-hmm. So,
2: David, in fact, if you're interested, there's the Benjamin Franklin Press or the Darwin Project. These are two websites, the Darwin wwwz Darwin Project. You've got to put in the Z. Okay. The Darwin Project. I think it's .org or .com. I wish I could remember this.
0: That's right. right. I'll find it here in a second. So. Um,
2: it's .com. It's okay. okay. Or the Benjamin Franklin Press. And you can find all these wonderful books that he's been writing that will soon be available through the Benjamin Franklin Press all right. on a more balanced Approach to Darwin, because as David says, he's been used as this 800-pound gorilla for Mm -hmm. the nomination system.
0: Right, but there's a whole other side of that story, people.
3: Yes. Well, that's that's great. I'm
0: so glad you brought that up. Very few people were, you know, are familiar with that second uh, and 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 most significant work of Charles Darwin called The Descent of Man. Yeah. And, um, you know, Rian, you and I spoke briefly off the air about a friend of mine who I know that you're familiar with, who I've spoken to a number of times on the air. His name is Joseph Chilton Pierce. Oh, he's a
2: wonderful man. I've never met him.
0: Well, he's fantastic and just one of my f- absolute favorite people. And he uh, has written... He hasn't released it yet, but he has a new book uh, that, that that's going to be uh, coming out relatively soon. And it's called... Um, I think the working title is something like The Death of Religion and the Birth of Spirit. Uh, but he... Uh, he quotes extensively from uh from darwin 's second work uh second work this uh, descent of man and and so he picked up on that too and it 's amazing how some uh, uh how people are are pulling on the same thread, so to speak you know and, and I love and been, I love it
2: he 's been actually in touch with david huh great so I think that uh, that 's not coincidental but um,
3: that it's is very wonderful. important to I love see,
2: it. because we live by stories hmm Mm-hmm. And whether it's original sin uh, or whether it's selfish genes, it comes to the same. There's something innately wrong with us, so we have to be controlled, right?
0: Right, the selfish, uh, selfish gene idea isn't is just a dominator idea, just pushed Absolutely. right down to the genetic level.
2: I mean, you know, there is such a thing as self-interest, and it's a very important human motivation. But this whole ruthless, selfish gene that we're robots of these ruthless genes Hmm. I mean you know that's another you know instead of the gods or instead of uh, uh, our you know terrible fall from grace now we've got selfish genes and it's a variation on the theme. I, 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 I sometimes wonder why some of these evolutionists and creationists fight because it's the same story. Right.
0: I think that's why they both they they both want to run the show, but they're both peddling the same stuff, basically.
2: Absolutely, it's the same stuff. <laughs> it's fascinating. Amazing, isn't
0: it? it really is. You know, um, uh, let me ask you a question here. It is uh, it's twelve thirty my time. That means it's ten thirty your time. Would you be willing to stick around for another thirty minutes? You think?
2: I'm beginning to fade a little, it's getting late, but I'll stay with you a little bit more so we can talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, where we need to go.
0: Yeah, let's do that. And, and uh, Let's
2: do that, and then maybe you can play some music after I'm off.
0: That sounds great. We'll have Michael uh, uh, stick with us here, and we'll have him play another song for us in a little while when we say goodbye to uh, to Rian. So, okay, well, let's, uh, let's do that. Let me ask you one quick question and throw it in here. Uh, language is so important with all of this stuff. And uh, that's a part of the game, too. In other words, man instead of human. Mankind instead of humankind. History instead of uh, a term you've suggested in the past. Our story, perhaps. Uh, But anyway, maybe you could talk really quickly about language and what you think about it. Well,
2: just as we live by stories, we live by language. Mm. I mean, the fact, for example, that our language only gave us the alternatives of matriarchy or patriarchy. Mm. You know, for for structuring the relations between the two halves of humanity is very indicative of where we are. But the uh, gender-exclusive language, you know, the language in which women are basically invisible, uh, women don't count. I mean, that's the message, isn't it?
3: Right, right.
2: And it's a very, very poor message because I'll tell you, uh, and, and you know, it's funny because people say, well, it's just language. So... You know, you can say to them, well, fine, if you think it's just language, why don't we talk about, uh, her or him or she? And they really get bent out of
3: shape, don't they? <laughs> they do, yes.
2: I mean, the thing, you know, they say, well, man includes woman. Well, actually, woman includes man.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but see, this is our heritage. And it's even worse in some of the, uh, Latin, you know, the Romantic languages where even the verb, uh, I, I mean the the whole thing it's just uh built into the language it's a horrific problem and uh-huh. i I think all we can do is to change it we need a new vocabulary hmm. we really do we need gender neutral terms gender inclusive terms very interestingly Finnish and Hungarian uh don't have he or she Hmm. They just have a gender-neutral pronoun. It would be interesting if we could uh, if we could figure that out. But there's so many things, and we don't even think about them now. The good news, of course, is that
3: consciousness—you
2: know—that we are today talking about these things and right. trying to change them. Right.
0: Hey, um, lots of people uh, on the web here were familiar with a seminar that you did a number of years back called "Woman and Man at the End of History." Uh, it was something that you collaborated with with uh, an old friend of mine, Terrence McKenna. Oh,
2: he was a lovely man.
0: He was, and um, and his brother is still doing wonderful work. And I always uh, like to say hi to Dennis whenever we're on the air. So, uh, at any rate, um, you know, you know, Terrence loved to talk about shamanism, and uh, uh, some people would like me to ask you, how do you see the shamanic tradition as it relates to uh, partnership methods of of organization, and maybe uh, maybe even what are your thoughts on on the, you know, entheogens, the vision-producing plants and how they might fall into this game.
2: Well, you know, Terrence and I agreed to disagree.
0: I, I know you guys did. It was an interesting conversation, as a matter yeah, of fact.
2: I, I think that without ritual, without being embedded in shamanic ritual,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, the use of these hallucinatory uh, drugs is not a good idea. And, of course, you know, I mean, we know that from the experiences of many people, there has to be that that that, that ritual uh, context.
3: Yes,
0: I, I agree with that, as a matter of fact.
2: Yeah, and uh, also in terms of the shamanic experience, I mean, certainly the idea of no-seeds uh, is very much uh, a partnership idea. The idea that we can have direct access to what we call the divine, that we don't need this priesthood
3: Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. uh, to give it to us.
0: Yes, regardless of the priestcraft involved.
2: That's right. And so I have mixed feelings about the shamanic issue because in one way, the shaman is still, if you will, the guru. Hmm. Uh, You know, the person who has that special power. On the other hand, there's no question uh, that some people simply have more access right, right. than others, but i I mean ideally, I think that we want to cultivate in all of us the capacity to really access well our our highest capacities, mm-hmm. our highest potentials, mm-hmm. and to do that requires more than individual work it requires social work. Mm. It requires uh, working on remissing, you know, just the way that it was remissed one way, you know, the Darwin story, for example, mm-hmm. you know, changing that story, um, changing the story of our prehistory, you know, from the so-called caveman cartoon, right?
3: <laughs> right, right. And we
2: show that to children, a, a male figure with a club, a weapon in one hand, Dragging a woman oh by the hair gosh. with another before kids even have their mental faculties, their critical faculties developed. So what are we teaching them? Yeah.
0: I, I mean, as you just mentioned that, you know, I think of my my own recollection of that, and it was a comical thing. In other words, it isn't now, but I think it just switched this moment. I mean, that that was something that. You know, as kids, we all laughed about when we saw the guy running around dragging the woman by the hair, you know? And
2: what does it really say? That right. Sign a memorial, right. uh, male dominance, violence. That's just how it's always been. We've got to change that story because really, if you look at the art of the Stone Age, nothing like it. I mean, and we, let's not go there right now. People can read the Chalice and the Blade right. with pleasure. So remissing is part of it, but changing beliefs isn't enough. Changing stories isn't enough. We've got to change the social structures. Mm -hmm. And starting with families, starting with the primary human relations between women and men and between parents and children. Uh, And and the good news, of course, is that there's movement in that direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bad news is that there's a lot of resistance to that movement. And we've got to recognize again and again that if we really want to have the foundations for, well, for a sustainable future at this point, not just a better future, uh, we can't really expect that by just trying to dismantle the top of the domination pyramid. Mm -hmm. We have to work on both. I'm not saying you just work on families, but we have to work on the long-term Uh, Yeah, a a very different family values agenda, and that's very important, and a very different economic agenda, and that's what my new book that I'm now writing on um, is about. So when I'm through with this, I'll have written about uh, power, you know, Chalice and the Blade is really a lot about power, and about sex, and now about money.
0: All right, those are the big three, (laughs) I guess. Big
2: three. So listen, I am beginning to fade. And it is getting late. (laughs) So unless you have another urgent question.
0: I have one urgent one, and I'm going to ask you before you say goodbye. Okay. And it's more of an advice question, I think. You're talking about families and children, and there are a lot of people that are listening that are uh, either in families or have families or are parents or... Uh, have children, and I'm one of them. I have uh, a wonderful wife, and I have a three-year-old son. And my wife is going to deliver another baby in September.
3: How exciting! And it is.
0: It's a wonderful experience and a wonderful time, but also really challenging and frightening at times. And maybe, uh, as someone with wonderful experience in your own relationships, you know, just I don't know, some tip or something to just give us a uh, something to grab onto, maybe.
2: Well, you know, there is. I mean, one of the wonderful things about our time is that there's so many excellent resources on stages of child development, which we didn't used to have. Mm. There are even good magazines. I mean, parenting, uh, child. Uh, There are a lot of wonderful books. I mean, the main thing really is that um, not so much perhaps your generation, and that's the good news, but some of your generation, yes. We have a lot of old tapes playing in our heads still about what it means to be a parent and you know which is to dominate and control now one of the pitfalls is what we did in the 60s and I was part of that unfortunately my kids turned out okay but you know instead of reconstructing we rebelled Hmm. so it became this permissive thing Do you remember
0: yeah well you just let the kids do whatever they wanted yeah
2: well that's not good at all kids need rules Kids really need to know that there are consequences for uh, being for behaving in uncaring ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think that uh, just watch not to go into the rebellion against the old tapes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that I think is very, very important. And of course, I mean, using physical discipline, it's so... One of the wonderful things today is that many countries, starting with the Nordic countries, which are the most partnership-oriented ones, you know, at this time, yes. you know, of, of modern industrialized, uh, post-industrial societies, uh, they, they're passing laws, making it illegal, a crime, to uh, use physical discipline against children, hmm. and that makes so much sense because. The point of the matter is that we have laws against hitting adults. So why should it be okay to hit kids? And anyway, what kids learn when parents, I mean, you know, sometimes parents lose it, okay, and I think that's another thing. Don't expect yourself to be perfect, please. Right, right. Because that's, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good, really. Mm. But the thing about it is that it's very important that we have a whole sea change here, Uh, and a lot of nations are beginning to pass these laws and are beginning to discuss this issue because, look, what do kids really learn in families where they either experience violence or observe violence against their mothers? They learn that it's okay to use violence to impose your will on others. Uh, So it's not coincidental, for example, that the 9-11 terrorists came from cultures where women and children are terrorized into submission. Hmm in families. I mean, it's all of one cloth, isn't it? It is. So these are, you know, the various uh, aspects. And what's, I think, very exciting is that we get a chance to really reclaim and to really reinvent parenting today in a way that is more appropriate for a partnership rather than a domination society. Because in a domination society, all of that fear and force Based, You know the parents will is law is very appropriate and necessary, but if we really want a democratic uh, And peaceful world it's anathema Uh
0: Amazing well, all right Rian. Thank you so much Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure and you're charming and brilliant and I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time And I hope we have a chance uh, to do it again sometime. I'd love to have David on the air as well
2: Great well when his um, uh, he, he, he one of his books, Darwin in Love, will be up soon.
0: <laughs> I love the title.
2: And then uh, you can talk to him.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, until then, we will uh, be in touch. Uh, but uh, again, from my heart, thank you so much.
2: It's, my, it's really my pleasure. Thank you, both both, Michaels.
0: <laughs> All right.
2: Bye-bye.
0: Good night, Rian. Uh, I got your mic up now, Mike. So.
2: Okay, and I look forward to the tape, and then I'll be able to listen to your last song, Mike. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: All right.
1: Good night. Thank you. Good
0: night. That's wonderful. Thank you, Rianne. I'll talk to you after the air. Take
1: care. Bye
3: bye. Bye bye.
0: All right. So there you have it. The wonderful Rianne Eisler, the author of, among other books, The Chalice and the Blade. It really is a remarkable book, and I would uh, advise everyone to go out there and get a copy of it. It's. um, it's available everywhere. If you want to find it online, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it at Barnes and Noble, or whatever, and you can probably buy it used for seventy-five cents or a dollar or something like that. If I know uh, the way those marketplaces work these days. So, anyway, uh, one more time for Rian Eisler. Thanks so much, Rian. You can find information about her through my website at mikehagan.com, and you can also find uh, her directly at www.partnershipway.org. Well, you can also find information about Michael Kane the uh, gentleman who's been playing music for us and uh, going to continue to do that for us here. Mike, thanks for being uh, patient and joining us and playing great music to accompany that conversation. I loved it.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. All right, let's awesome.
0: uh, uh, play something for us. What are you going to play?
1: I'm gonna play a song that I think you like, uh, "Under the Moon." I'm just gonna play that one right now.
0: Good, let's do that, and then um, we'll come back, and I'll do my space weather bit, so okay. uh, <laughs> I can tell people what's happening in the skies above their heads. So, okay, everybody, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and uh, this is Michael Kane. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. Under the moon one of my favorite songs thank you from my guest in the studio here and we got time to talk a little bit now Michael uh thank you so much for that that's Michael can uh Michael kane everybody and uh he's a local singer songwriter around uh, the Columbia area here and uh, plays around the Midwest up in Chicago now and again and all around we'll talk to Mike about that right now so uh thanks for being here and I hope you uh, enjoyed hanging in with uh, Rian she's wonderful
1: yeah that that's uh you know. It seems like um, you know I could live a hundred lifetimes and not not take in as much as she has. I mean, uh, it's it's pretty incredible everything she had to say. I mean, you know, I I think I'm gonna have to go back and listen to your archive section to kind of pr- take in that stuff again. I mean, that's that's some heavy hitting stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, share it with
0: your wife. That sort of stuff. It's great for people to hear. To yeah, hear it, so. and, I,
1: and you know, and also I'm I, even listening to her. I mean, as much as some of it was, uh, uh, you know, I have to admit, hard for me to to really take in and, and comprehend. You know, I, I am now kind of intrigued. I want to read read some of her books. You know, I mean, the Chalice and the Blade sounds, you know, just amazing. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's and, awesome. and 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 then her other ones that you mentioned, and uh, and he, even the talk of, you know, her her husband and the whole kind of following. You know uh, Darwin's Origin of Species. Oh I, yeah. I mean, it, yeah.
0: yeah, his second work. This this book was called The Descent of Man, and it was an opus. I mean, it was it was as, I mean, it, it basically occupied the second half of his career, mm. but it was buried immediately uh, because, it, for exactly the reasons that Rianne points out, that it uh, 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 Origin of the Species basically said that the biggest, meanest, toughest wins. You know, that's the headline, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. But uh, origin of the species had nothing to do with humankind. Uh, that's the big evolutionary problem that evolutionary biologists have had to deal with ever since they've been studying this stuff, is that all this stuff works for mollusks and armadillos, you know, and fruit flies.
1: Mosquitoes, erupt, yeah, that, yeah. You know,
0: but... The human being really is the fly in the ointment. It it, it just uh, they, it just doesn't make sense, and and uh, so uh, applying the origin of the species theories to human beings is inappropriate and is not accurate. Uh, the descent of man, which was his second work, addressed these other issues, and that's why it got sort of shuffled under the table because it sort of pointed to the things that Rihanna is pointing yeah,
1: out. Yeah, no, no, I, you know, so. Maybe you can help me out here. Was she saying that in uh, the Descent of of Man that that's where the, the, he brings up the word love and things yeah, like that? Yeah. yeah, I mean it is an amazing thing because uh, I mean everything you're saying, I, I think I'm following you. I mean w- with what's going on with uh, human beings, I mean when you when you take love into account of uh, of of us, it's amazing. I mean we kind of throw out sort of that whole survival of the fittest because we you know i mean we we do everything we can to 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 make to keep the you know i mean and i i use this word so arbitrary but you know the the weak or whatever i mean we, you know in every situation i mean we even do it you know with the uh, trees that are you know dying or, or i mean we do everything we can to kind of keep keep us going or keep people going for reasons not just um Sort of about surviving. I mean, it's a love yeah, but, becomes yeah. the, the crucial, crucial
0: right. factor. You know, there's um, we mentioned this guy Joseph Campbell uh, during during the conversation. He's a he was a mythologist extraordinaire, and he wrote about many of these things and how they show up in different cultures around the world. But he tell he used to tell this great story about how uh, when he was in Hawaii one time and he was up on this cliff uh where the road goes through the mountain uh up on one of the volcanoes and uh, there's a bridge and on either side is a, is a, a long long drop uh you know and uh sometimes people go up there to commit suicide and he tells the story of uh this man who's driving with a friend along along this road and and uh as they come up to this bridge they see a guy who's about ready to jump right And, uh, this guy jumps out of the car, out of the moving vehicle, and somehow makes it out, and right as this guy's jumping, grabs, grabs a hold of him, and were it not for his own leg, getting caught on a tree root or something crazy, or the, I forget exactly, or the, or the, uh, uh, the guardrail from the, from the highway or something, um, they would have both gone over, right? But uh, they didn't, and they, they both survived or whatever. And the the interesting thing to me about this is that, you know, this is true love of one's neighbor. In other words, this is something more primal takes over, you know, when because he didn't know that guy, you know, he didn't know what religion he was, he didn't know... Uh, how he treated his family he didn't know anything about him yet he was willing to risk his own life without thought right. right to in order to save this other man and so to me that's sort of the true human spirit being allowed to show to shine we get glimpses of it every once in a while you know and uh and then when you think about the opposite you know of of purposely Perpetrating violence uh, upon another person that you don't know, you know, and who mm-hmm. hasn't done anything to you. This is the opposite of it. But that's sort of the the the, the dominator uh, sort of ideal is one that that we're most familiar with. Yet human nature comes out whether you like it or not in certain situations, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you happen to be, you know, you, you just come a ca- uh, come a- upon a car crash or, or a house on fire and someone says their baby's in there, you, I know you, Michael, you'll go in and you'll do whatever you can do. Yeah. All of us will do that. So this is our nature, but the problem is our nature has been, uh, you know, deeply uh, separated from who we really are, I think, or we've been separated from, you know, our nature in many, many cases.
1: So. Yeah, um, I, I hope this this is relevant. Uh, interesting, I'll try to make it quick. Um, a bird had recently, about a month ago, built a nest on my front door. We have a wreath on our front door, mm-hmm. bird built a nest in the wreath.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Kind of noticed it, my wife and I, we usually never go out our front door anyway, we go through the garage, So, but once we noticed it, we absolutely made sure not to go through the front door we didn't want to disturb you know and a week two le- two weeks later we we kind of peeked in when the bird wasn't there we see there were some eggs in there and mm-hmm. a week whatever later now we start to see some chick heads <laughs> sticking above and, you know mm-hmm. and we we kind of felt you know i don't know i mean we we so wanted this bird to you know survive and and, and or, i'm sorry the chicks to survive sure. and everything and then this is about a week and a half ago Two o'clock in the morning, I hear tremendous banging on the door. I immediately kind of jump up. My dog is barking, everything. Mm-hmm. And I kind of look out the little window, and um, and I see a uh, cat walking off uh, right from my door. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, and open the front door. There it is. The nest is laying on my ground with four chicks laying there. And, you know, w- what my wife and I did, it's two in the morning. We, I mean, we just... We picked up the the nest. We set it back on the wreath. Mm -hmm. We picked up the four chicks. We set them back. I guess that's what you call them, chicks, right, baby birds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Set them back into the wreath, and I I, I don't know. Everything just seemed to be okay. The next morning, they all had actually fallen out, and I think it wasn't because of the cat. I just believe Mm -hmm. that they fell out. Um, I then really repositioned the nest. Um, All the chicks were laying on the ground again. I did this again. Right. Um, only to, you know, ultimately it end in disaster. Three, four days later, all chicks are gone. The nest is laying on the ground. I believe eventually that cat just got to it. And, and what really kind of upset me was, you know, obviously I understand you know, cats' nature is to do what it wants to do. But you know, and the the interesting thing is that it's, I believe it's a neighborhood cat that's most likely very well fed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it it kind of made me think like these. Here it is. This animal, almost sort of, I know in no ways willingly or knowingly, you know, but almost in some ways, if it was a human being, it's like perpetrating violence just for no reason whatsoever. And you know, human beings now seems like do that more. You hear on TV like just stories of a random guy walks up to a guy, hits him, but they shoot it on video, and then you know, I don't know. There's yeah, recently a poor homeless man, I believe, that died recently at the hands of a couple of younger kids. Just things like that. Just yeah, and
0: it's happening all the time. Wow. I mean, it's happening nonstop. It happens everywhere. Uh, you know, w- much more often than we hear. Certainly, you know. Hmm. Um, but, I, gosh, I mean, the, the, we we talk about the you know try to talk about the roots of these things a lot on the program, and I think I think Rian has a big piece of the puzzle. This 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 whole. Um, the dominator model as she calls it i think there is a big i think that's a big part of it because i grew up in a family that was like that and 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 i had this sort of uh it's a you know that's one of the things that i have to overcome in my own family is to make sure that i take the good stuff from my parents what they did and 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 try to leave the leave the bad stuff behind yeah
1: here it is you have a child and another one on the way yes you know
0: yeah so you want to you don't want to you don't want to keep repeating cycles of bad things. You want to you want to you want to start cycles of good things mm-hmm. or continue cycles of good things, etc. So, um, so I, you know, I, I really try to inform myself about this stuff. And yeah, rian has got a big piece of the puzzle. This whole idea of of of, of uh, natural childbirth, though, too, versus technological childbirth, and separating children from their mother and bonding issues and all this stuff is a big part of it, too. I think, but. Anyway, look, um, it is uh, just about top of the hour here, 1 a.m. in the morning, now the, the 13th of June. Uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOP in Columbia, 89.5 FM. If you missed uh, the first hour and 40 minutes of the program, we had Rihanna Eisler with us. She's the author of The Chalice and the Blade, among many other wonderful books. You can check her out on the web at partnershipway.org, and you can find me on the web at www.mikehagan.com. We're streaming live every Monday night now on CosmicWavesRadio.com. Hello to everybody over there, and thanks as always. And hello to uh, Bob and Loom and Michael and whoever else is over there in the chat room right now. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, there's some funny things that go on in that room. I'm laughing right now as I read, but... um, Let's see, it's top of the hour, and Mike, do we want, want to play another one? Sure. Play another one for me, another, and I'll, I'll take a break, and then we'll come back and do space weather, like I said, okay? Because there's some wild things happening. This comet uh, that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, for the last couple months, as a matter of fact, that nobody else is talking about, is outrageous. You won't believe what happened last week, and it, it hasn't been in the mainstream news, so I'll tell you about that in just a few minutes. In the meantime, uh, one more time, we'll have Michael Caine here sing a song, and play some guitar for us. What's the, what are you going to play, Mike?
1: Um, this song has um, sort of been taught. It's Sweetest Kiss has become the name of it. All right. It's changed it. a few times over the past few months, I guess, but sticking with Sweetest Kiss now.
0: So. All right. And look, uh, on the web, uh, for Michael, one more time, dot ecom and MySpace.com slash Michael M-I-C-H-A-E-L. C A N E.
1: Correct. Yeah, I know I, it's confusing, but ah, I don't sweat it. If, you, if you just go to MySpace, even just regular Michael Kane, you can then get to my website. Or if you even throw it, I think I think possible you could throw it into Google too, just Michael Kane, and you'll find my website. Yeah, and so, from my
0: site, you can link right over there now too. Yeah. So. Hey. All right. <laughs> Stuff, Thanks. Excellent stuff. All right, Michael Kane. And chance uh, to, to sort of relax a little bit now. We've got our interview under our belt and we've got another 50 minutes here. So, Michael, you stick around with me and we'll play some more music, okay? Yeah, right on. All right, cool. All right, this is Mike. Let me take care of some business here. Space weather. Uh, where are my notes here? All right, check this out um, Comet 73P. The one that Kent has been telling us to not forget about, to keep our eyes on. All right? Well, I didn't do space weather last week, and I should have because I had a note here that said, uh, if Kent says we need to keep watching, we need to keep watching. That was my note from last week. So anyway, in the last week, guess what happened? A big fragment of something smashed into a mountainside in Norway with the uh, equivalent uh, explosive capacity of Well, an atomic weapon. And uh, it's been completely blackballed, or or whatever the word is, uh, from the mainstream press. All around the world, as a matter of fact, only the newspapers in Norway are the only ones that carried it. Uh, And um, anyway, Kent's got a whole bunch about it on his site, some discussion about it. So if you're interested in that, go to cyberspaceorbit.com. And trust me, this one is one that we need to keep watching uh, so for me, that's still the big news, 73P, schwassmann wachmann There are fragments all over the place. Um, for those unfamiliar with the story, uh, this is a comet that had been um, really highly anticipated by astronomers to appear in our skies right about now. Um, a few years ago, uh, astronomers were actually really excited about this particular passing because it was going to be the first Bright naked eye comet uh, that we were going to be able to see in the sky again. Naked eye comet, something you can see without the aid of binoculars or a telescope or anything like that. Uh, but Schöpferman-Wachmann was going to be this really bright event that was going to be, you know, celebrated by astronomers and uh, you know anybody in the northern hemisphere was going to be able to see this thing. So four years ago, however, it broke up into three pieces. Three. Primary fragments, and so uh, it's been the subject of a lot of interest in the astronomical community since then, because it's been approaching you know our solar or, or the inner solar system, and about two months ago, three months ago, uh, those three fragments began to fragment, and what happened? Long story short, is the whole thing disintegrated, and we are now, and have been for about a week. In the debris field of this comet, and uh, I mean, I don't know any more than you know. All I know is that's what's going on, and and there are big rocks in there, and small rocks in there, and perhaps biological material in there. We've talked about this concept of panspermia. Maybe this is the first uh, uh, first time we'll, we'll we'll get to actually experience that in the real. I don't know, but it's pretty wild stuff, and we're right in the middle of it now, and there have been lots and lots of reports of fireballs in the sky uh, from all over the world. I was out on, um, on Friday night, late, and it was really clear. Uh, and speaking of under the moon, Mike, it's a beautiful moon tonight. It's almost full, another day or two. But anyway, uh, this weekend, it wasn't quite as bright as it is now, and I saw uh, in a short period of time a couple, three shooting stars whatever they were you never know but we're also in the midst of a of, of a meteor shower uh, to uh, to add that into the mix but anyway this 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 comet is really worth watching and uh, if you want to do that the guy who's really on top of it is Kent Stedman obviously uh, yeah. www.cyberspaceorbit.com uh, follow it over there and keep watching the skies pretty amazing okay i'll read i'll read a little bit more about that story about the meteorite that hit norway in a minute okay Right on the sun, uh not a whole lot going on in the sun. There's a big dark filament a uh, big uh long filament that's about 200,000 miles long right now it's sort of on the southwestern limb of the sun, and uh some potential flaring from that particular area of the sun, but nothing uh nothing really significant, I don't think anyway, these filaments are actually hydrogen clouds that are held up by magnetic fields, we think. That's about the best theory so far that's come up uh, for, for what they are. But um, they look uh, darker because they're 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 actually um, brighter than the surface of the sun. Uh, but they appear dark because they're in front of uh, the actual surface. So anyway, uh, there are some interesting images of this stuff. If you're interested in looking at, get on the web. Go over to spaceweather.com and you'll see. Uh, more about what I'm talking about, okay? All right, in the news, July 11th through 14th, uh, I think that back June 11th through the 14th, that's going on right now. There's a conference on the statistical challenges in modern astronomy. I only mentioned that because I wanted to make a joke because the statistical challenges of modern astronomy are simple. They just don't have any data. <laughs> we don't have near the data that we need. We try to make assumptions about the whole universe with... Uh, with a very, 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 very small data sample. We don't even know much about our own planet, and we're extrapolating about the whole universe. <laughs> so, that's you know, and by the way, that's another component of this whole dominator model. In other words, the dominator model uh, is egocentric, and the ego basically is defined by boundaries and by controlling those boundaries. And one of the things one of the things that uh, that's required to keep that sort of a thing moving is an understanding of everything. You have to know exactly what's going on everywhere. You have to understand the whole universe, and there can be nothing uh, uh, to surprise you. That's why when, you know, tsunamis hit places or hurricanes happen or whatever, or results, uh, Katrina is another great example of this. You know, in the midst of an absolute catastrophe, which is ongoing, by the way, you know, that has yet to be resolved. We have major, major problems, you know, right now in the, uh, the Gulf Coast, still, and probably for a long time. But the whole line is, oh, everything's perfectly under control. Yeah. And, and
1: our, you know, our, our egos too. I think are even, you know, and I'm not um, suggesting one way or the other. But you know, it obviously seems like uh, just that area in Louisiana is a little. Um, I mean, it's unstable, you know. But, oh, we're, I mean, up, but yeah. we're like, yeah, we can, we'll go back we can and rebuild it. We can do, we, we do whatever. Put up dams, yeah, digs, whatever. And I
0: mean, it's we'll solve it, you know. Like yeah. no matter what, just in the face of you know stronger storms, warmer seawater temperatures, the land is sinking. You know, every it's year kind of anyway.
1: Blank. Yeah, just leave reason behind right. and just do whatever. And it's, yeah, but it's
0: it's economic though too. You know, they don't want they don't want to lose their money. I think it's yeah. a, it's a money issue. So, anyway. um uh, anyway, so that's the challenge of modern astronomy. Statistical, di- uh, uh, there's a conference going on. I guess they're going to talk about all this stuff. So, Anyway, um, uh, a couple other asteroids that are passing close to the planet here in the next day or two. Uh, the Genesis Pathfinder is going to be launched on the 16th. There's a star party going on in the Grand Canyon next weekend. <laughs> and... Uh, Oh, and uh, on the 18th, Mars is going to get really close to Saturn and go through a beehive, the, what's called the Beehive Cluster, uh, a star cluster. And that will be really cool because Mars will look, uh, it's going to be, you know, it's a bright red star is what it looks like. But behind this Beehive Cluster, it will be a really cool site. That will be um, on the 18th. I think that's next Sunday. So if you're into sky watching, um, get on the web and just go over to my site. And from there, you can jump over to some of these space, uh, uh, space type information websites, okay? All right, what else is happening here? We've got lots of stuff in the news, um, but I better talk really quickly about upcoming guests and this sort of thing. So let me do, let me do this. Um, well, let me say thanks, first of all. I didn't get to uh, start the program like I typically do, so thanks to everybody who has uh, sent emails and corresponded with me over the last week. I appreciate it, as always. Hello to everybody who's listening over the web. Whether you're listening live or whether you're listening from the archives, I appreciate it. I'm glad you're enjoying the program. We're streaming live right now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio. And you can find them on the web at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Thanks to everybody over there for making it happen for us. And hello to all the new registered users at the site, getting more people every week. And um, it's great to see that. The forum, of course, uh, benefiting from that. Lots more people getting involved, and I like it. And I thank you to everyone who's participating. All right. Also, people out there who are sending art and music, it's awesome. I love it. Send more. Do more. Send it. Play it. What did they send? Well, uh, I, b- I basically uh, I do what I what I do with you guys down at the Blue Fugue. I talk on the air. I say, hey, if you're a musician, if yeah. you're an independent musician, if you have music that you'd like me to listen to, or if you want me to play, maybe send it to me and. If we can find a way to work it into the program, you know, I'll do it. And I have a section on the website now for visual art, and um, I'm going to put a photography uh, uh, page up there as well. I know that's something that you're actually interested in. So the idea, you know, one of my big, uh, one one of the cornerstones of my project, of the radio Radio Orbit project is just sort of to bring a lot of different art together in one place. You know, I love... The information side of the program, and I love getting the opportunity to talk with people like Rian. But I also love music, and I also believe that there's a, you know, a big, uh, I don't know, a gaping hole that needs to be filled, you know, with regard to the arts and the and the uh, the combining of the arts with the sciences again, you know, and that's what this is sort of about. I like to talk about science and technology. Uh, but I also like to talk about art and creativity and imagination. That's one thing I didn't get to talk to Rian about because um, uh, I-, I will uh, I'll sort of speak for her from something that I that, that I've found in her books, you know. And the whole idea of imagination and art and creativity is antithetical again to this whole dominator model because the dominator model basically uh, encourages the status quo. Encourages uh, homeostasis as opposed to change, right? Well, the driving force of creativity is change, you know. And so, uh, when you find uh, if if you if you look at cultures that are heavily dominant, you'll find repression in the arts, right? The image of the starving artist is a is a uh, a fitting one, in other words, because the arts although they're they 're given lip service right, which they have to do
1: yeah
0: right they're given lip service, but the arts are not really valued in a dominator culture in a dominator society, and you find it uh, uh, in, in in a culture just like ours, where you have so many wonderful artists that have very little opportunity yeah, to share to share their art, whether it 's music or dance or poetry or literature or whatever there's just a very small percentage that actually really uh, can, can actually make a living and yeah. uh, and do it that way yeah right?
1: it's a really interesting thing too I, I do a lot of painting and uh, mm. and it's something that 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 just amazes me as you know i i 'll see paintings or even photographs at a at, at an exhibit or or um you know, just on a street corner, and there will be a for sale sign, or you know, a little price tag attached mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm always kind of amazed that, and, and and I don't, um, I, I've never, I've I've never really sold a lot of work, and not not in the sense of putting it out on a street corner or having it in a in a gallery or something like that, but um. But i'm I, I, it's always amazing when you see something priced at two thousand three thousand dollar <laughs> you know and and I don't know way to take away from an artist because I myself you know do paintings and things like that but but um it, it's almost uh it's not neat it's not necessary you know mm-hmm. and um it doesn't serve- uh doesn't have a utility, you know, purpose. You can't do anything with it, but but hanging on your wall or something, right, right, right. and to be charging so much money sometimes it blows my mind. Like, gosh, I mean, I if I were to sell something, I would think I would sell it so cheap just to do it because because mm. well, I I have yeah. such a you know I don't know a sort it's of different look at it, right, and I, that's
0: the nature of art. I mean, the, the art to. To do the work, you know, and it's not even work. I mean, it's more like play, I guess, and that's why you call it playing music, you know. You yeah. don't call it working music. Interesting, yeah. You know, um, uh, but we talk about an artist and his or her body of work and that sort of thing. So, again, it's interesting how we use language, you know. But, um, you know, I have no problem with people making money and making a living off of their art and, and you know, as a musician, I'm sure that you can. Yeah, and I have know, no problem relate. pricing
1: stuff extremely high either. I mean, I understand you put a bunch of hours into it mean, you know, and you factor you know, it in. But I
0: agree. I mean, at, at what point, you know, is art for the people or is it for some elite that can afford to pay, you know, big prices and stuff? I guess that depends on the artist and who he really, you know, what, what his agenda or her agenda is. And you can, it's a personal thing, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is interesting how that all goes. I mean, um, I mean art from you know hundred two hundred three hundred years ago. I mean that can go for so much money right uh, now, and it, it just seems like it's more of um, yeah. I mean it's for yeah. People. That's
0: just an elitist thing, you know. And yeah. it's
1: a, you know just to own it and just to be hey I right. I, I have this. You know
0: um I,
1: I don't know I don't
0: know if you've ever read any James Joyce, but uh, you know Joyce talked about the aesthetic experience, and he described it not as owning something that he called pornography, right In other words, it wasn't about buying something and putting it on your wall, nor was it about uh, 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 talking down about it, you know what I mean uh, uh, you know choosing some particular form of art and degrading it. It was didactics, I think he called that, but at any at, at any rate, what he described as the aesthetic experience was to take the piece of art, whatever it was, whether it was painting or photography or music or dance, to sort of put a frame around it in your own mind, right? And from from that image or from that experience, extrapolate into the further experience of the world, hmm. you know? And it had nothing to do with ownership or... Uh, social privacism or anything like that, right? It was about a personal experience that was brought on by the viewing or the hearing or the reading or whatever of the art.
1: It's priceless then, yeah. When, when, when you're doing things like that with it, you know, I mean, to an individual it, it right. can be. You know? Yes, I mean, in if, fact it is. Yeah, yeah it, it is. I mean, so, I'm you sure know. that's where that, that term comes sure. from. and
0: you know the right song at the right time, the right book at the right time, the right movie at the right time, whatever can really change a life. Yeah, you know?
3: absolutely, it really
0: can. I mean, I have, I have my own, um, you know, personal like milestones or, or or landmarks or whatever, and they're musical. I mean, I can hear a certain song or whatever, and bang, man, it's time travel. You sure. know, I'm back exactly to that place mm-hmm. where that was significant or whatever. Anyway, I find it fascinating. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, so I'm encouraging everybody to send their art, send their music, send it to us, and we'll find a way to incorporate it into the website. My webmaster's name is Larry. He's wonderful. He's uh, had a difficult time over the last couple of weeks, but he's an amazing guy. Yeah, and that I,
1: website looks good, too.
0: Thank you, Mike. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. He does, uh, it's, it's all Larry, and, and he, he he's, I'm really lucky to... Uh, to have him helping me. So, anyway, thank you, Larry, for that. And to everybody else out there listening, uh, send us your art, and Larry will, uh, will make you proud of it, okay? And you should be proud of it anyway for doing it. So do more of it and send it to us and we'll share, okay? All right, if you register on the site, uh, the guys from Yachai have made uh, Sweet Mother Mercy available. That's their CD that's uh, been released uh, for about a year now. And that's available if you register at the site. Also, you can get a couple screen savers or something like that that Larry has put together, and you'll have full access then to the archives and all that stuff. And it doesn't, uh, you know, it's it's real easy. I just need an email address and nothing else, a username and a password. You pick that yourself and, and just a valid email address, and you can get on the site. You can get on the site either way, but that's the way you got to get access to the archives because I need to know uh, who's listening, and I need to have an email address so I can get in touch with you if something... Uh, interesting or exciting comes up, and I promise I won't share it, and I promise I won't abuse it. I've only sent out one email to everybody in the history of the whole program. So, anyway, all right, uh, also, I'm sorry for swearing last week. It upset a few people, and uh, I got a little excited, and I'll uh, refrain in the future. All right. Uh, the email address orbitradio@aol.com. orbitradio at AOL.com, www.mikehagen.com, the website, and let me take care of a quick thing here. The Twilight Festival on third, on Thursday, June 15th. You can have some fun at Flat Branch Park. It'll be karaoke. And uh, if you like to sing, just join in uh, the group there. The public is invited to listen and enjoy. Registration is required for participants with uh, Aaron Carrillo. And you can call them at 874-6341. And we'll also be having uh, a special event outside the KOPN station uh, at 915 East Broadway on Thursday night as well. We'll probably have um, tours of the radio station available, not probably, but certainly if you're interested in seeing your local community radio station, come on down Thursday night and run upstairs and we'll show you around and there'll be some cookies and cakes and that sort of thing up there to entice you or to bribe you into coming. Yeah, Mike, you got to start tapping on that thing a little bit later here. Um, anyway, uh, Twilight Festival, Thursdays in June. Come down to KOPN and also this week there's some fun stuff happening obviously down there at Flat Branch Park. Okay, Um, upcoming guest next week Walter Cruttenden Walter was on the program in November of last year he's written an amazing book called Lost Star of Myth and Time and there is more and more evidence coming out speaking of uh, space weather in the astronomical community that the sun may be part of a binary star system we may actually have a twin uh, star that that uh, uh, that shares our solar system with us and um it's a really interesting story, and for those who are um, uh, skeptical about that, uh, just know that 80%, fully 80% of all of the known star systems in the Milky Way galaxy are binary systems, or, or trinary. So if we are not involved in a binary or a trinary system, we are more the anomaly than we are the rule. So if we actually did have a... Twi- <coughs> Pardon me... um. If we did actually have a twin, (coughs) uh, it would be sort of par for the course. It wouldn't be all that big of a deal, because that's sort of what we see when we observe out there in the heavens, a lot of uh, binary and trinary systems. So, anyway, before I um, choke again, and uh, who knows what will happen after that, I'm going to say that I'm going to take a break. <laughs> ah. Michael Kane. You have these
1: mics on? It's called All You. All right. Is that new? uh, It's somewhat new. I I haven't been playing it too much. I I wrote it, I don't know how long ago, but I kind of haven't played it too much, and now I'm starting to kind of think about it and like it a little bit more.
0: I like it. I like your little hi-hat there and your little tambourine setup. That's pretty cool. Trying something out (coughs) a little bit here. I like it. All right. Uh, sorry, everybody. I've got like a little frog in my throat. I don't know what's going on, but uh, <clears throat> we will sort of struggle through it. There is a question on the board right now. It says, uh, any comments on the Soho imagery uh, with regard to Scott Stevens and Kent Stedman's craft that seemed to frequent soul, of course he means the sun, um, in uh, great numbers. And
3: <coughs>
0: what this guy is referencing is uh the Soho spacecraft that Kent Stedman and I reference sometime when he's on the air is a satellite that uh, um is stationed about a million miles outside of earth's atmosphere and it and it constantly looks looks at the sun and it has a lot of different filters in it and you can have different uh uh different views from Soho but every once in a while something shows up uh on the Soho cameras that is unidentifiable. And uh, they uh, these particular images, are they're, they're repeatable. It's the same shape, and they look, uh, well, it's hard to describe. But anyway, they are not planets, and they are not stars. Those are things that have been ruled out. And this guy's just asking what I think they are, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh, <clears throat> It's one of those things. It, it, it could be anything. I mean, it could be the you know the NASA people tell us that you know that, that it's just an artifact, quote unquote, that's oral, or you know or a problem with something in the lens, dust in the uh, nearby vicinity of the camera, all kinds of things like that. It doesn't appear to be that sort of thing to me. It's it, it looks very similar to what a bright planet looks like when a planet is crossing in front of the SOHO field of view. That's what it looks like. But when these things occur, all of the planets that are in the vicinity are are uh, <clears throat> accounted for <clears throat> and are not uh, they're not present in the field. So, so I don't know what these things are, but they're strange. Um, and uh, they keep appearing over and over again. The guy's right. We we see them all the time. If you get on the Soho website and just look at the historical. Uh, frames. They take a, they take a photo every 15 minutes, and they're updated every 15 minutes. And the archives go back years. And if you get <laughs> a lot of time on your hands, you can just start cruising through those archives, and you'll see every once in a while. Of course, you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to know what what you know what planets are and what stars. You have to sort of educate yourself on it. But or you could just uh, take the fast track and just go over to Kent's website at cyberspaceorbit.com, and Kent will explain the whole thing and show some images to you as well, and then there's a lot of speculation as to what's going on. So, anyway, I don't know. Who knows what's going on these days? I mean, it's like uh, hard, to, uh, it's hard to imagine something that's not imaginable, because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot going on. I'm looking at the news here. <clears throat> oh, all right, so i got to read this, Michael. You won't believe this. This, this. this meteorite, no kidding, a big meteorite hit Norway yeah that is strange <clears throat> listen to this <clears throat> alright see if I can read it without uh, choking again here it is right here open link alright this is uh, the English version of a website uh, and a newspaper called Aftenposten from Norway it's a legitimate and verifiable news source if anyone's interested you can find the link right on my website and go directly to the story Anyway, listen to this. Uh, This is from uh, June 9th. Record meteorite hits Norway. As Wednesday morning dawned, northern Norway was hit with an impact comparable to the atomic bomb used in Hiroshima. (coughs) Didn't hear about this on CNN, did you? This is, again, (coughs) one of these ideas of control. In other words, this is something they have no control over, so you don't talk about that, right? Because it shows that things are out of their control. Anyway... Uh, at around 2.05 a.m. on Wednesday the residents of the northern part of Troms and the western parts of Finnmark could clearly see a ball of fire taking several seconds to travel across the sky a few minutes later an impact could be heard and geophysics and seismology research foundation NORSAR registered a powerful sound and seismic disturbance at 2.13 a.m. and 25 seconds at their station in Karasjok um farmer Peter Bruvold was out on his farm in Lisette with a camera because his mare Verrica was about to foal for the first time I saw a brilliant flash of light in the sky and this became a light with a tail of smoke Brufold told Afton poston he photographed the object and then continued to tend to his animals while he heard an enormous crash I heard the bang seven minutes later it sounded like when you set off a solid charge of dynamite a kilometer away he said astronomers uh, astronomers were excited by the news. There were ground tremors, blah, blah, blah. This is, now, listen to this. <clears throat> Here's a... Uh, uh, this is a quote from Norway's most his most well-known astronomer. The guy's name is, uh, is Knut Jorgen. At, uh, Knut Jorgen Odegaard, actually. He says, "...this is simply exceptional." I cannot imagine that we have had such a powerful meteor impact in Norway in modern times. If the meteorite was as large as it seems to have been, we can compare it to the Hiroshima bomb. Of course, the meteorite is not radioactive. Of course, he doesn't know that. Uh, But in explosive force, we may be able to compare it to atomic weapons. So, anyway, it's a big deal. And if it would have hit a city... Right? Or something?
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable. Right? Right. I mean, and yeah, I haven't heard anything about that. It's <laughs> kind of interesting. I mean, <laughs> well,
0: it's I've had I've had a difficult time even convincing people that it was real. Yeah, I'm going right? to
1: have to go home and, and look at yeah. this for myself to actually even kind
0: of... So anyway, there's another one that, that, that a day later that, that impacted in Manitoba, in Canada. Hmm. And that was an airburst.
3: And one now, that didn't actually the,
1: uh, do, <clears throat> do they have any idea of the size of...
0: Well, I don't know. You can see the impact on the
1: side Did of the they mountain. show. Yeah, new yeah impact it, crater or something
3: yeah, like it.
0: that. Yeah, there's some pictures up on my friend's site, and, and I've got a few links, but yeah, it's outrageous, man. Yeah, wow. So, anyway, that's, and, and uh, the speculate, of course, our speculation is that it's a piece of this comet, you know, that that, 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 that we're going through right now. And, um, and I think that's why. See, the interesting thing about this comet that we've been talking about <clears throat> is that uh, prior to its breakup, it was being touted by the astronomical community in public as, hey, people, this is going to be cool. This is something that we should all watch, right? Then all of a sudden it went awry and things started to happen that they weren't expecting, and hmm. you, you can't find a story about it, right? Hmm. Uh, because they don't know what's going on. I mean, nobody knows what's going on. Mm, so when you don't know what's going on, just don't say anything. Act like it's not. Don't like it doesn't exist. Right. Same thing with this thing that hit in Norway. That's sort of my explanation, at least. But I don't claim to know what's going on. But I know that we're in a debris field of a comet. <laughs> I mean, I know that. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean that's apparent. So anyway, there's lots, of, lots of lots of wild stuff going on. Um, so get on the web, yeah, and you can go prove that to yourself by going to my website and go over to Kent's as well. There's, there's been a tremendous amount of discussion about it in, in the astronomical community, but nobody else knows about it. So Anyway, here's one here. Uh, more than 20 years of collaborative research at the Georgetown Lab of Dr. Richard Schlegel and they have uh, finally resulted in a major medical breakthrough, the world's first cancer vaccine.
1: Yeah, I heard about this. Yeah.
0: So, uh, anyway, the vaccine's technology was generated by a team of Georgetown University researchers in the early 1990s, blah, blah, blah. On June 8th, the Food and Drug Administration approved the vaccine. That always makes me nervous. If the FDA says it's okay, I'd say you better research it pretty thoroughly before you take it. (laughs) Actually, I say that about anything. Uh, i I say that about anything you know don't trust someone else to uh determine what's good or bad to go into your body. You figure it out and and with your children too. you know when it comes to vaccines and all this stuff, don't forget there's a lot of money behind this stuff and the pharmaceutical companies, if you remember the story I read last week that was the source of one of my uh, profane utterances was be and I'll say it again because the people who weren't listening to the show, and i'll paraphrase and make it quick, Bayer Corporation and this came out in 2003, three years ago, and I have the video and I have the audio that I played last week, but Bayer Corporation had a product that was called Factor Eight, and Factor Eight was a pharmaceutical that was sold to people with blood disorders like hemophiliacs. And um, uh, during the 1970s and the 1980s, Bayer Corporation collected blood from anybody and everyone uh, in order to make the plasma for this product, Factor Eight. They didn't test any of the blood that they used to make the product. Well, it turned out that much of the blood that they used to create factor Eight was tainted with the HIV virus. And many, many people were infected in this country. And, uh, in fact, thousands of people. And Bayer, uh, they actually uh, admitted to this. And there was a huge settlement, some $600 million, that was spread out among thousands of people who had been infected with the HIV virus because of this product, Factor 8? what they didn't tell you was that when they recalled the product, after they knew that it was infected, they resold it in Italy, in France, and in Japan. And, uh, you know, I, I, you can't say any more about it. You know, about, about... These are decisions, you know, that are being made by human beings. People talk, you know... Uh, Rihanna and I spoke about language a little bit tonight, and it's it's a big uh, interest of mine. And one of the tricks that the Orwellians use with their doublespeak and with their language uh, manipulation is they speak of countries and corporations as entities. In other words, they say, Bayer Corporation did something today. Or they say, the country of... South Africa reported today, right? Well, countries don't report things, and corporations don't report things, and corporations don't make decisions. Individual human beings who who are employed by these corporations or who live in these countries or who run these institutions, they are making decisions. There are human beings that made these decisions. So somewhere in a boardroom, somebody... Or some group of people came to a consensus that this was a wise move. Alright? For profit. And that's why. <coughs>
3: I'm
0: you know, you don't even know if that's all that matters. It's just profit. You can actually see through anything, uh, for profit. But but this is the type of people that you're dealing with. You're not dealing with corporations. This is the type of people that you are dealing with. All right? And uh, the pharmaceutical industry is a nefarious one. And I was and I worked in the medical industry for four years, and I spoke with doctors every day for many, many, for four years. And I learned more than I wanted to learn about the medical industry. The industry, right? It is an industry, and it is hardly about health care. Uh, so anyway, be careful before you take any of this stuff. And if there are new vaccines that show up, well, check them out if you think it's right shoot up if you don't don't but, but you know don't just buy into the propaganda I mean this thing's been all in the news and all this stuff now and I mean it's just a big it's, it's just a big marketing campaign basically is what it is yeah, mean, yeah
1: it's so scary I mean God.
0: yeah I mean it's sickening right yeah. so anyway I talked about it last week we don't need to dwell on it so alright uh, what do we have here Rainbow that set the sky on fire. This is an interesting story that Larry put up. I'll read this Uh, for us. Did you read about it? Well,
1: I saw. I think I saw a picture of it.
0: Amazing photo. Yeah. Yeah. It's a
1: photo of a almost looks like aurora borealis kind of looking thing. Yeah. It's up
0: up up in the Pacific Northwest, like around uh, Washington or Idaho, something like that. Anyway, uh, this is one that you should actually take a look at. But um, hop on the web. You can link over there from my site, and it's amazing. uh, 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 A rainbow that. It happened to be happening at the time of this uh, really cool cloud formation, and it created a beautiful sight here.
1: Yeah, it's neat looking.
0: So anyway, I'll read a little bit here. It says, In a breathtaking blaze of glory, nature puts on one of its most spectacular sky shows. I know this isn't great on radio, but I'm looking at it, so I'll read it <laughs> to you. Uh, reds, oranges, blues, and greens that created a flaming rainbow that stretched above the clouds. Uh, this actually happened on the Washington-Idaho border, on Saturday, and uh, some fellow here at the Weather Service in Washington said that it was even more spectacular than the Northern Lights. I felt lucky to have seen it because it was one of these very rare situations. This is the first one I've ever seen, and it was breathtaking. It hung around for more than an hour. So anyway, lots of wonderful things in the sky. You just have to take the time and look up, and you'll see uh, amazing things. Hopefully, you don't see rocks crashing down <laughs> in your general vicinity. If you do, go find the one you love. All right. <laughs> and uh,
1: maybe maybe that's what hit that uh <laughs> that big top Al Qaeda guy. Over there the <laughs> yeah, <other day. laughs> yeah, they're, they're
0: taking credit for the uh, Al Zarkawi. Yeah. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other
3: story. He hit by the media.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now they're controlling space <laughs> rocks. Let's see uh, what else is happening here. Dolphin. You know, there's some people talking about dolphins on the forum there because <clears throat> we had Star on last week. Um. Uh, China and Russia warn against deploying space weapons as they do it themselves, as we do it, as everybody does it. Everybody talks about not doing it, but that means they're doing it. So that's not really worth reading. Um, Ah, On Jupiter right now, people may be familiar with this thing. It's called the Big Red Spot or the Giant Red Spot on Jupiter. It's one of these... uh, uh, It's actually a big storm that supposedly has been raging for hundreds of years. Well, a couple of years ago, another one popped up. And uh, they call it the Little Red Spot, and this was really interesting because the atmospheric situation on Jupiter hadn't changed much for the whole time that we've been watching that planet. Uh, and it got smashed in 1994 Shoemaker, by a comm- Shoemaker-Levy, Shoemaker-Levy nine. 9, right? And after that, man, that blew a lot of people's minds. Nobody, nobody was expecting it, first of all, and the and the. Uh, the impact that it had on the planet, no pun intended, was it was really significant and it changed the weather patterns, it created this, this, uh, this other big storm and, the, and, and Jupiter has been sort of in flux ever since that happened. Um, anyway, those two big storms are now going to join and, mm. and who knows what will happen, if they'll get bigger or dissipate or I don't know, but that's, that's about, to, it's about to happen as those, and so there are people that are watching that with sort of uh, interest to see what happens as those two storms collide. On Jupiter. Uh, let's see. No tolls on the internet. We've talked about this a little <laughs> bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this and see what they're saying about it today. Um. You know, I think that I think that uh, my own opinion is that I I don't think they're gonna have any luck. But
1: anyway. So yeah, explain that a little bit. What what they're, they're there's groups out there that wanna that want to make people pay for just
0: yeah. Basically, it's like this: it's like depending um, on
1: where you're at and where you're going, and yeah, certain sites would maybe be taxed or something. Yeah,
0: somehow it would it would be the provider whoever whoever you're getting your internet connection from, whether it's AOL or whatever you know. Yeah, um, the service provider, or or it could be. Uh, the idea is that the phone companies would sort of the people that are actually providing the infrastructure, right? That they want to they, they want a piece of the action. They want money somehow out of this thing. They have and they can't get enough yet apparently. <clears throat> but uh, my understanding is is exactly that is that they, is that they want to rather than just give the service that is just inherently available through the network, right? They want to put bottlenecks on
1: yeah
0: basically and then decide the speed of the flow through those sure. bottlenecks and, disp- and 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 the direction of the flow you know and how so how quickly my site in other words uh, fox news might load up much quicker than radio orbit does right yeah. uh or not i mean you know depending on who's paying who and you know and who's and and it just becomes a you know a big labyrinth of economic stuff but there are many people on the technical on the technical side of this thing that say, phooey. Uh it's not happening. It's not happening right now." If it were, if it, in other words, nothing stops these people. First of all, <laughs> right? I mean, if there was a way to be making money on the internet uh, through uh, through that type of means, my my intuition says that they would be doing it. Uh, it's just the way that the, the way that the corporatiers are. I mean. You know the internet has now been you know uh functioning pretty much as it is now for twelve thirteen years mm-hmm. I mean people are getting more familiar with it there's more websites being added all the time et cetera et cetera. The interconnectivity is growing and all that stuff. but the internet as the internet is basically i mean they've had thirteen years you know. Yeah. Usually you give them 13 days to make some new money, yeah. and 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 it's already in law. It's written in stone in Congress, and and all the guys are jumping up and down drinking champagne about the big windfall that they just uh, created for themselves. And I just don't see it happening. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm let's hope not. Let's hope not. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I if it, if it does, uh, you know, it's a. See, you have to remember that there, that there the the internet is not just the United States, right? Uh my my streaming signal right now is going out through uh the Amsterdam loop in in uh in the Netherlands right so there's a whole lot to this thing, and i I think it's another fear tactic actually I mean I think it's a whole nother fear tactic about you know we're gonna get control of the internet we're gonna, they have no control over the internet if they if they did i mean I'd probably be one of the first people that they limit access to <laughs> so until I see something. Uh, you know that really makes me. I'm not. I'm not as paranoid as people think I am. Uh, I actually think that the, that the government types and all these guys are. Are you know? I won't swear again. I was going to say chicken, and I was going to put a swear word at the end of after the word chicken. But let's just say I think they're cowards for the most part, and and they they don't like they like to uh, peddle confrontation, but they don't like confrontation when you actually know anything about them. So anyway. Maybe I don't know anything. Whatever. Uh, no tolls on the Internet. That's my mantra. And I And I don't think it's going to happen. So we'll see. We'll find out, I guess. Um, but if they were going to do it, I think they'd sure be doing it already. Why not? There's money to be made there, right? Uh, super battery. Yeah, um, um, you know, technology in all these different fields is just uh, expanding so quickly, but now batteries are just becoming... I mean, it's just one of the many, many things that we're seeing advances, but there are these little bitty batteries now that are going to be running all this nanotechnology and stuff. It's just absolutely outrageous. Let me, let me jump in the chat real fast one, one more time, see if anybody has anything to say. Uh, here's a guy that mentions the Canadian meteor. said, that one seems wild, a la the blob. <laughs> the official explanation doesn't suffice for me. No, it doesn't really. So Anyway, well, Michael, I tell you what. Let me uh, do a quick... Goodbye here. We'll close out with some music. You can play a song for us on the way out. Uh, We've got Walter Cruttenden. I didn't mention some of the other guests. I started choking when I was doing my upcoming guest stuff. But Walter Cruttenden will be with us next week. He wrote Lost Star of Myth and Time. This idea that the Earth is part of a binary star system and that our sun has a a sister out there somewhere in space. Uh, The following week, perhaps Rick Levine... I'm trying to get Rick Levine for the show on the 26th, but uh, uh, we may do something special that night uh, if we don't get Rick. Daniel Pinchback, we're still uh, scheduling him. We've got Daniel Sievert trying to get that put together. I'm still trying to reach Christopher Dunn. If anybody knows how to contact him, please let me know. And, uh, well, we'll leave it at that for now, okay? So a big thank you to Rian Eisler. Come on back next week. We'll do it again. We'll have Walter Cuttenden and some more new independent music for you. And tonight we will finish things off with, uh, the way we started with Michael Kane And you can check him out on the web at myspace.com slash Michael M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-A-N-E. And you can also get directly to his personal website from my website at mikehagan.com. And he'll be on the music page, uh, on the music archive link from here on out. So if you want to get to Mike, it's easy to find him on the web and, uh, you can listen to his music; it's wonderful. And if you're around here in town and in the uh, Mid-Missouri region or wherever, uh, find out where he's at and go check him out live because he's uh, a great uh, young talent around town. Michael, uh, quickly, where where you, where you're? Uh, what's your schedule? What are you doing around town?
1: You know what? Uh, as bad of timing this is, I don't have any. I don't have any shows right now. Uh, had we done this show uh, when we originally intended to, I had I think two or three lined up something like that um but yeah as of right now i don't have anything i've been in and out of town with just personal stuff a whole ton lately and uh that probably will continue for at least another week or two so kind of in the next couple weeks um should kind of be back on track i'll probably be playing probably around here somewhere and uh here in columbia and also, I'm trying to work on getting up to Chicago and St. Louis and Lawrence, Kansas and Kansas City, all that. So, um, all right, all right. so yeah.
0: All right, awesome. Well, uh, like I said, check him out on the web, and you can hear one last song right now. Yeah. Uh, one last time. Uh, it's Mike Hayden. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. Uh, thanks to everybody at KOPN for making it happen, and uh, we'll see you next week.
4: I can't fault you for last night And cannot blame you Cause you're right But I will help you If you fall down, down, down The stairs tonight